everyone. Welcome to the Devil in the Details podcast, the podcast where I investigate and expose ongoing, unlawful, non-consensual human experimentation on innocent men and women in the U.S. and possibly abroad. I am one of those people victimized by this atrocity, and now I am working hard to restore justice by sharing evidence and information in hopes of prompting a proper investigation. Join me in my fight and help raise awareness by tuning in and sharing this podcast with your family and friends. Black Americans have struggled for basic human rights since we arrived in the Americas hundreds of years ago. Just to be treated fairly with dignity and respect is something we've, we've always had to fight for. And that is what the civil rights organizations of the 50s and the 60s and the 70s were about. And it's not like we just sat back and, you know, were so long suffering for hundreds of years and then just decided during the 1950s, hey, you know what, I'm tired of this. Let's, you know, let's get together and fight this. No, there have always been uh, revolts and you know, abolitionist movements and all sorts of movements that have fought for the basic freedoms. I mean, just basic freedoms of black Americans, you know, here and across the world. But the civil rights movement of the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, that was something different. And that was that movement really sparked a lot of changes, especially in terms of uh, consumer rights and employment, voting, things like that. But there was so much resistance to that movement that these organizations and their members were treated like terrorists. Unlike the Ku Klux Klan and other hateful groups and people. You know, these people were out here killing innocent folks who were just marching for human rights. You know, they're not out in the streets shooting people, harassing folks, marching quietly, singing songs. And this upsets you so much that you feel the need to lynch, beat, spit on, fight these people, blow up their homes. I mean, that's just basic pure evil that they were so threatened by, you know, black folks having the same rights as them. And yet these hate groups did not receive the same level of scrutiny that the civil rights organizations did. 
They were free to roam and terrorize people with little to no punishment. But the civil rights movement, they were treated like the threat. And that treatment came in the form of, you know, came in many forms. But one of the things that was done was in order to disrupt the movement was federal, state, and local governments used spies to infiltrate these civil rights organizations. And be it in the South or the North, it was all the same. And they would use us, our own people, against us. You know, they'd have informants come in pretending to be down for the cause, down for the movement, pretending to be a friend, but they were really an enemy. Many times, these people were coerced or forced to spy on their own. And most times they were compensated, you know, or received some other type of benefit. And that is what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at the spies and informants of the civil rights movement during the... um, well, during the civil rights era. And I want you to take a look at these and really pay attention to the tactics that were used, which are always similar across the board, like in uh, part one of this, which if you haven't seen it, I'd recommend go checking it out. Um, The tactics are always the same, you know, whether it was then up until now. So... Take a look, sit back and enjoy it. Uh, there are a few interviews, some with actual informants. Um, others are stories that are told by biographers and authors. Um, but I hope that you'll enjoy it. And after it's over, close out the podcast and stay tuned for part three of this, where we will be talking about Uh, the East German secret police the Stasi now that is one that's going to be a really good one and one that you'll really want to hear about so thanks for listening here are the videos This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman, with Juan Gonzalez. Evidence has emerged that the FBI played a direct role in infiltrating racial justice protests after the police killing of George Floyd in 2020. A new podcast out today, called Alphabet Boys, documents how the FBI paid an informant at least $20,000 to infiltrate and spy on activist groups in Denver, Colorado. The informant also encouraged activists to purchase guns and commit violence. 
This is the trailer to Alphabet Boys. The summer of 2020. I know, I'm gonna go get my gas Millions protested for racial justice across the country, with some of these protests turning violent. Over the heads of the shield! That summer, it felt like history in the making. Big changes were coming. And then, the protests just... stopped. There were these rumors that government agents had infiltrated the movement pushing it toward collapse. It sounded paranoid, right? But you know what? Okay, it is August 28th, 2020 at approximately 4.02 p.m. It wasn't. I'm Trevor Aronson, and I'm a journalist covering federal law enforcement, the alphabet agencies. Is the FBI sometimes, you gotta grab the little guy to go after the big guy. This is Alphabet Boys a new series from Western Sound and iHeart Podcasts. Each season, we'll take you deep inside an undercover investigation. In season one, we're headed to Denver. UC7775 in Denver, Colorado. Today is August 25th. Where FBI agents are investigating political activists following the murder of George Floyd. A mysterious man rolls into town. He's wearing military fatigues, and he has a cigar dangling from his lips. The car he drives is unmistakable, a silver hearse. He was very convincing, but he did explain, you know, he was for this BLM movement, and inside this hearse was like a lot of guns. Was this the guy the movement needed to take things to the next level? At the end of the day, you come to me, I got something for you. Play stupid games, win stupid prizes. Or did he have a secret agenda? He was just waiting for me to set the date, the time, the meeting spot, and then for sure he was trying to get it to happen. He's a bad guy, the bad guys attract bad guys. And I feel like he's gonna keep doing this forever. They wanna cover up the fact that local, state, and federal law enforcement caused violence here. The trailer to the new podcast, Alphabet Boys, out today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other podcast platform. The podcast centers on an FBI informant named Mickey Windecker, a convicted felon who once fought, he said, with the Kurdish Peshmerga. This clip from Alphabet Boys begins with a Denver racial justice activist named Zebedias Hall, who will be joining us, talking about Mickey Windecker. I didn't know much about him, but he drove a hearse. And inside this hearse was like a lot of guns, you know, like AR-15s and all other kinds of I never held one of those before in my life, and I held it, and I was like, oh, shit. But I'm pro-gun and everything, but I never held anything like that. Yeah, it was just this badass dude, you know, talking about he worked in a foreign military. He was for the Black Lives Matter movement, and, you know, it just seemed interesting, you know. In August 2020, with millions of Americans protesting across the country, activist Zeb Hall invites a guy he's met at one of the demonstrations to his apartment in Denver to talk about plans for the future. The way I look at it is like, it has to happen, it has to happen. But it's like you said, I mean, how extreme do you expect it? Would you want it to go? 
An excerpt from the podcast Alphabet Boys, the FBI informant Mickey Windecker played a key role in organizing the protests in Denver. He would also go on to give the activist Zebedias Hall $1,500 to buy a gun for him, which led to Zeb Hall being arrested for transferring a firearm to a felon. Some of the FBI's actions have been compared to the agency's covert COINTELPRO program—that's counterintelligence program—which targeted civil rights groups and other activist movements in the 1960s and 70s. In a moment, Zebedias Hall will join us from Denver. We'll also be joined by former FBI agent Mike German, who now works at the Brennan Center. But first, let's turn to Trevor Aronson who created the Alphabet Boys podcast. Trevor's an award-winning investigative journalist, contributing writer for The Intercept. He's author of the book The Terror Factory, Inside the FBI's Manufactured War on Terrorism. I mean, this is an astounding podcast series, Trevor. You've got the undercover recordings of, for example, the black activist Zeb speaking to this man, Mickey Windecker, who would travel around in a silver hearse. Um, first, if you can tell us where you got these recordings, if you can, but this lay out the story for us. Sure. I, I can't talk about sourcing for the recordings or the records, but, but what I can say is that what's significant about this show is that it's the first behind-the-scenes look at how the FBI infiltrated and investigated racial justice groups and the racial justice movement during the summer of 2020, which for two years now has always been an open question, which is how did the FBI respond to racial the racial justice movement given the context that the FBI had previously designated black political activists as so-called black identity extremists or anti-government extremists. <clears throat> and what's significant about this is that the FBI in Denver, according to internal FBI recordings or internal FBI reports and re undercover recordings, hired a convicted felon with a history of sexual assault and, and menacing with a weapon to infiltrate these groups for while being paid thousands of dollars. And, and the shades of COINTELPRO that are part of this rise from the fact that Mickey Windecker, the informant, ended up becoming a leader in the protest movement, just as we saw informants in the 1960s and 1970s during COINTELPRO become leaders in those movements, and then accuse other leaders, or the real leaders of these groups, of being informants, a practice called snitch jacketing that was used to devastating effect against black political groups in the 1960s. And that's exactly what happened in Denver. Mickey became a leader of the racial justice movement there, accused real leaders of being informants when they were not, and then, once he was in a position of leadership, attempted to entrap local activists in crimes, in some cases violent crimes. In fact, Mickey and the FBI went so far as to try to stitch together a supposed plot to assassinate Colorado's attorney general, Phil Weiser, which ultimately went nowhere, but shows you the scale that the FBI had in trying to manufacture a plot that activists could get behind that would then reveal these activists as being violent. And I think it's, under, I think it's important to understand the context in which this happened. Um, in, in 2020, the, the Trump administration at the time was really beating the drum on this idea that Antifa and Black Lives Matter activists were potentially violent. This was a narrative that was being reinforced and echoed by right-wing media at the time. And what you're seeing in, in these undercover recordings is the FBI essentially trying to make that possible and happen. Um, ultimately, that does not happen. Obviously, there was no pl assassination plot or attempt against Phil Weiser, the Colorado Attorney General. But the FBI, using this paid informant, went to extreme lengths to try to make that happen.
Well, Trevor, as you mentioned, uh, this uh, was a tactic used often uh, uh, during COINTELPRO in the 60s and the 70s, but it's become standard practice for uh, the FBI and law enforcement. If I think back to during the Seattle World Trade Organization protests. There were undercover agents then trying to uh, spur extreme action uh, uh, among the protesters. Uh, during the period after the 9-11 uh, uh, attacks, there were undercover FBI agents who tried to infiltrate uh, Muslim groups around the country, trying to get them to participate in uh, uh, in violent acts. Uh, so this has been a regular uh, feature of, of the FBI. Have you been able to see whether they were doing this to the same extent among the right-wing groups that were actually involved in, in major, uh, major terrorist attacks across the country? Absolutely. So this is a tactic that became commonplace in the post-9-11 era, which was that the FBI used undercover agents or informants to, in, in the case of uh, counterterrorism investigations, go into Muslim communities, find someone who might be interested in violence, and make everything possible, providing the means, the opportunity, and in, in most cases, the bomb or the weapon that ultimately would be used, then arrest that person and announce to the public a terrorism plot foiled. And so what's significant here is that we're seeing a lot of the powers and tactics used against would-be terrorists or, or supposed terrorists in the post-9-11 era being applied against political activists in Denver in the summer of 2020. And, and the reason that is significant is that the internal FBI records show in the case in Denver that the FBI launched its investigation based on nothing more than First Amendment-protected activities, which were essentially things that Zebedias Hall and other activists had said, which in some cases were quite incendiary, but ultimately were First, first Amendment-protected activities. And yet they launched this investigation based solely on that, without any reason to believe that any of these activists were moving toward a plot of violence or, or anything of the like. And as, as for the question of whether this happens on the right, it does. You know, obviously there have been other plots that have that have targeted right-wing activists. The, the most well-known right now is the plot that uh, targeted a group of men in Michigan in a supposed plot to kidnap Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Um, and so I think what's important about this story now is that we are entering this phase when Jim Jordan and the Congress are about to launch this committee that is specifically looking to establish this narrative that the FBI is solely focused on uh, this type of tactic against right-wing groups and right-wing political activists, when that isn't true. What, what ultimately is, is true is that the FBI has an enormous amount of power that deserves a lot more oversight than it currently receives, and all sorts of groups, from left to right, are subjected to this kind of uh, activity by the FBI. And so this narrative that the right-wing is att attempting to establish, that the FBI is prejudiced against right-wing groups and we're only seeing this activity among right-wing groups, there is evidence of that, and no doubt Jim Jordan will find it. But the truth is that this is far more extensive. It involves a num many groups. And in, in, in most cases, I would argue, if you look at the history of prosecutions in the post-9-11 era, these types of tactics are used far more against left-wing activists and left-wing political groups than they are against right-wing groups. Even though the intelligence committees have found that it is domestic terrorism, far right-wing, that is the greatest threat um, uh, to the United States right now. Um, and you're talking about the Select Subcommittee on the Weaponization of the Federal Government, chaired by Representative Jim Jordan of Ohio. That's meeting on Thursday. But let's turn to a video capturing when FBI informant Mickey Windecker met with his FBI handlers—by the way, he's denying he's an FBI informant—but 
met with his FBI handlers before he met with the Denver activist Zeb Hall. It is August, August 28th, 2020, at approximately 4.02 p.m. Uh, Special Agent Scott Dahlstrom with Special Agent uh, Byron Mitchell, uh, CHS, for meet with uh, Zebedias Hall. Thank you. You can hear this, so I put it in my front pocket, right? Yeah. Okay, I got it. See how nice and slender they are? Video look good? Yep. Yeah, look handsome. Mm-hmm. Not as handsome as that kid. So that's Mickey Windecker talking to his handlers, going out to meet the guest we're joined by right now, Zebedias Hall, or Zeb Hall, a Denver activist targeted by the FBI, featured in the Alphabet Boys podcast, joining us from Denver. I mean, Zeb, this is a, such an amazing story, because you'd think if the FBI wanted to infiltrate a group, like a Black Lives Matter group, they wouldn't have someone who just appears so different in every way, this white guy who is blatantly driving the silver hearse filled with automatic weapons. I mean, it is amazing. So, talk about how you met up with him, your involvement in BLM, Black Lives Matter, and why you came to believe um, that he uh, was a, you know, a fellow traveler, if you will. Um, I first met—well, um, thanks for having me. I first met Mickey at one of the uh, earlier protests, uh, either it had been uh, July, early July or late June. Um, he was around a lot of folks, you know, uh, taking information, uh, phone numbers and whatnot. Um, it was quite odd. You know, we were all confused. We didn't know what to expect, and uh, it was uh, very terrifying down the line when we found out more about him. Um, you know, it's a very dangerous history this gentleman had. and. Uh, I think it's very terrifying, especially the fact that, you know, it was uh, sent to our BLM movement in the uh, hopes of tarnishing it. And, Zeb Hall, what led you to begin to think that he might not be on the up and up? And uh, and, and why did—what were some of the examples of ways he tried to get people to do things they normally would not do? Uh, yeah, it's—towards um, the—I uh, <clears throat> would probably say— uh, Towards, uh, you know, um, there was a march on the uh, headquarters of the uh, police department, and, you know, people were just starting to get, you know, more, how would I say, uh, uh, rowdy as, than usual. And, you know, he's uh, yelling at people, you know, uh, ordering, making orders and whatnot. And sometime down the line, you know, it was really evident when the Colorado Springs Antifa released an article uh, explaining more about this gentleman. Uh, it was uh, very heinous and uh, scary. So until that article came out, you had no suspicion that he that he might be an agent provocateur or a or undercover informant. Uh, it was very confusing, you know. Um, you know, we were it was so much going on that summer. We didn't know what to expect, but we never would have thought that the FBI would have sent a gentleman like that uh, to our movement. Uh, everything was really confusing. Um, you know, it's so hard to put things together looking back now, um, but. 
it's, uh, I would say at the end of the day that, you know, I think most of the things that uh, happened, either it be violent or uh, confusion, wouldn't have happened without the uh, FBI and their informant, Michael Windecker. Let's go to hear the FBI informant, Mickey Windecker. In a recording he made after he was accused of being an informant, he spoke in front of a flag for the Kurdistan Workers' Party and an AR-15-style assault rifle. That was his background. So there's a group that, or a individual that's claiming that they are Antifa Colorado Springs. And in fact, that they, I believe that they are actually not Antifa Colorado Springs because I believe they are actually a cop. This individual has posted stuff discrediting other individuals that are fighting against the fascist in Denver, Colorado, such as cutting the plastic and other communist groups and other individuals. I, for one, am not amused or pleased about the f that's going on. So that's Mickey Windecker um, accusing Antifa of being the informants. Um, Zeb Hall, talk about how you were entrapped then, um, how he gave you money uh, to buy a gun for him, and what happened next. Uh, yeah, I'll start off saying, you know, I was scared, but, you know, I've got to own the fact that I uh, purchased the uh, firearm. Um, you know, I, it was just quite odd, and, um, you know, then the way in which, you know, he had me—he explained it to me, uh, I just didn't understand. I never purchased a gun before. You know, and I get this gun for this gentleman, and, uh, you know, um, shortly after, you know, the uh, information comes out about his uh, criminal history and who he is. And, you know, I'm terrified at this point, and come around January, you know, an article comes out, you know, uh, with Mr. Shelby, uh, who will be mentioned later on. And at that point, you know, I was absolutely terrified. You know, it's, um, I was just afraid. You know, I, I own what I did. And, you know, I never thought I'd be in a situation like this, but, you know, um, here we are. It was just a terrifying experience. We were all afraid. I'd like to bring in former FBI special agent, uh, Mike German, uh, uh, now a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice at New York University Law School. He's written a book titled Disrupt, Discredit, and Divide, How the New FBI Damages Democracy. Mike German, uh, talk to us about these efforts by the FBI to especially target uh, a movement, social movements uh, on the left. Thanks for having me. Uh, it, you know, Trevor has spent a large part of his career covering this change in, in the FBI's undercover tactic, where they uh, have aggressively used uh, informants, had informant-driven operations uh, targeting mostly Muslim Americans in terrorism investigations with, with a, uh, a tactic that wasn't designed to uncover criminal activity that was ongoing, but rather to manufacture criminal activity, to create a case where no case had existed before. And what I think is really critical uh, about the reporting on Alphabet Boys is that in many of those cases, Trevor had to rely on court documents or uh, Freedom of Information Act records and, and statements of the defendants. And defenders of these tactics at, at the FBI and elsewhere would often say, well, the FBI probably had some other kind of information that justified the use of tactics. 
of these tactics that couldn't be released in court or, or discussed openly. Where here, Trevor has the entire investigative file, and we can see that this, the FBI here chose somebody with a, with a serious criminal record uh, to infiltrate a social movement uh, and target people who were, were much less involved in any criminal activity and actually to stoke violence at these protests. Uh, and, and that's a tactic that, you know, as discussed, is straight out of the COINTELPRO, COINTELPRO playbook, where the, the tactics were meant to disrupt and divide the social movements rather than to uncover serious crime. Um, Zeb, you were sentenced to three years probation. I'm wondering, with the police killing of um, T. Ray Nichols, and also you were dealing not only with George Floyd, but uh, in um, in Aurora, Colorado, at the time, the horrific police killing of uh, Elijah McClain, um, with the massive uh, crackdown on protesters after that, as they would engage in violin vigils, because he played violins for cats and dogs at the local shelter injected with this massive dose of ketamine. Has this changed your approach to the world? Are you afraid to be an activist? No, I'm, I'm more committed. Um, you know, it's a, it was a terrifying experience, but, you know, I know what I signed up for. Um, this is a lifelong thing. Um, you know, even though it does affect us as black people more, I do understand this is a situation that all people in America have to deal with. Um, so it, um, no, I'm, I'm more committed than I was before. This is a, this is going to be a lifelong thing. And Trevor Aronson, in the last 30 seconds, we have what you want people to take away from this podcast series dropping today, Alphabet Boys. So I, th I think it's important to, to recognize that not only did Mickey Windecker try to set up activists like Zeb in, in specific crimes, but that he played a large role in turning what were otherwise demonstrations and protests into what became full-out assaults on police stations in Denver. Some of the most violent incidents that we saw in Denver that summer had Mickey's fingerprints all over them. He was hyping them up. He was encouraging people to attend. He was encouraging people to become more and more violent. And so, in, at least in Denver, we have evidence that the government, the, a government agent was behind many of these protests that ultimately turned violent. Well, this is a truly astounding podcast series. Trevor Aronson, the host of the new Alphabet Boys podcast, award-winning investigative journalist, contributing writer for The Intercept. Zebedias Hall, thanks so much for joining us from Denver, an activist targeted by the FBI, featured in the podcast, and Mike German for joining us as well, former FBI agent, now a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. That does it for our show. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Well, I say it is frightening, and it should be frightened uh, to the entire American people that he has demanded $10 billion. And if he doesn't get it, then there may be riots this summer. Martin Luther King is nothing but a blackmailer, and he should be arrested for blackmailing because he certainly has blackmailed the United States government. There's one thing that bothers me, and that, uh, as a Negro yourself, why do you talk so 
bitterly again Martin Luther King and uh, a lot of these uh, these other uh, people of your race. Well, let me tell you something. I don't put my race before I do my country. Uh, being a Negro woman doesn't matter to me who is a Negro or who is a white person. If they are enemies of our country, then they are certainly my enemies too. What makes you so sure? Are you sure you got the right guy, and are you sure he was up to what you say he was up to? TJ, we have the right guy. Um, <clears throat> Mr. Withers was, um, after he had been an informant years later, had gone to work for the uh, state of Tennessee and got caught up in a public corruption probe, and it's through that investigation and the release of these documents uh, of that public corruption probe that we were able to verify that he was indeed a confidential informant working for the FBI back in the 1960s. The, there was a background report that was done in that investigation and it says very clearly that, that Ernest Columbus Withers was designated as informant ME338R. And what we were able to do with that then is go back and look at documents that had been in the public domain for years that had been released under the, the Freedom of Information Act back in the 70s related to the 1968 sanitation strike in Memphis as yeah. well as a two-year probe that the FBI did of the invaders and we were able to track that number and find specific things that Mr. Withers was doing for the well, FBI. What did you find he was doing? And again, you, you're basing it on matching up his name with this number. So according to the number and how it was in the documents, what was this number, if you will, doing for the FBI? He was doing a number of things. The first match that we actually got was, was a, uh, from Dr. King's funeral down in Atlanta, which we know that Ernest Withers was there covering because we have his photos. He shot pictures of Coretta. He shot pictures of the final services at Morehouse College. And in this report, uh, ME338R is telling the FBI, hey, be on the lookout. A couple of Dr. King's aides are coming back to Memphis. Uh, this was just a week after they had a very disastrous march. Dr. King had led a, a march a week before his death there that uh, had turned into a riot. Uh, and, and so the FBI was on high alert for any kind of violence. And here their informant, ME338R, is telling them these aides are coming back. Mark, let me ask you as well. You have the number, you have the name, you've been able to match up through documents. But have you been able to find any living person to corroborate the story that you're matching up with the documents? Well, yes. I, I initially had a source. I didn't just stumble upon this. I went looking for this because I had a source who told me that, um, that Ernest Withers had worked as an informant for the FBI, um, you know, that he had taken numbers of photographs for the FBI, that he'd provide tips. He was a good informant because he was well-connected in the community. He knew everyone. He, you know, Ernest Withers got around all through Memphis and throughout the South during the the civil rights period and so yes everything that this source has told me came to light and was corroborated when we actually were able to piece this together well a lot of people saw this uh, initially and I'm sure you've gotten the reaction as well saw this as a betrayal someone who did have such access during the civil rights movement to these civil rights leaders one of them being ambassador Andy Young we had him on our air this week I want our viewers to take a listen to how he reacted to this news
You have to understand that our movement was designed to be totally transparent. He was our voice to the world. But if he was that much of a trusted friend, why wouldn't you expect of him to say to you, by the way, guys, with a wink and a nod, Andy, you know what? Yeah. I'm not going to, I'm going to keep doing this, but I'm working for the FBI. Why wouldn't you expect him to be straight with you and, and, and Dr. That, King? It wasn't that important to us. How could it not be important to you, Andrew? Why, I don't know why it needed to be. We knew we were trying to change America. We knew our instructions from our lawyers were for us to inform the FBI and the Justice Department of everything we did before we did it. Hmm. We had no secrets. Well, as you see there, Mark, the point he was trying to make is that, hey, we wanted this thing to be as transparent as possible, so we didn't really mind. But a lot of people, other people seem to mind. Last thing here to you, what has that reaction kind of been there? A lot of people feel like this was a betrayal. Memphis has a deep civil rights history there. So what has the reaction been around town? The reaction has been all across the board, TJ. Um, everything from pe uh, denial, uh, people feeling betrayed, people embracing it. Um, it's, it has created quite a stir, no doubt. And Mr. Withers, you know, as you might know, is, is a, a longtime Memphis hero. I think he remains that. And, um, you know, what this will do to his legacy ultimately, you know, I guess history will decide. But um, I, I think it only enhances him as a very intriguing historical figure. Photographer Ernest Withers captured some of the most indelible images of the civil rights era. The photo of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. riding one of the first desegregated buses in Montgomery, Alabama. The iconic image of black sanitation workers carrying I am a man signs in Memphis. And he was the only photojournalist to document the entire trial in the murder of Emmett Till. But Withers was also an FBI informant, funneling information to the Bureau about the civil rights movement and its leaders. Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Wesley Lowry joins us now to talk about his new podcast called Unfinished, Ernie's Secret, which explores the government's efforts to infiltrate and disrupt the civil rights movement and the man who was caught in the middle. It's great to have you here. The podcast is phenomenal. Thank you so much. I'm glad you're enjoying it. So tell me more about Ernie Withers, who he was apart from his life as an FBI informant, because his biography in so many ways is a cross-section of Memphis history. It's a cross-section of American history. He's this World War II vet, the first, one of the first black cops in Memphis. And then he becomes a freelance photographer. Yeah, Ernest Withers is fascinating, and he gets into photography in part while he's in the armed services. Uh, he would take photos um, and s of the uh, other enlisted men and sell them to them so they could send them back to their wives and girlfriends, or maybe both their wife and girlfriend, depending on the guy, right? Selling them, not giving them. Yeah, correct, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, he, he was he was a, a smart, industrious guy, right? And so he, when he gets back to Memphis, uh, does a stint as a police officer, but then becomes essentially the black photographer in Memphis. And so he documented everything, homecomings, repasts, just everyday black life. He also uh, was obsessed with Negro League baseball, and mm. so he would travel and, and, and shoot photos of all of these black baseball players across the country. And then also Memphis has stacks records in it. And so he photographed so many musicians, be it uh, Elvis and Aretha Franklin and Tina and Ike and, and so many folks. And so, in fact, when you go to Memphis, uh, his old studio on Beale Street is now a museum uh, yeah. where you can see this remarkable uh, collection of photographs by Ernest. 
And how did he find his way into those moments where he was so close to Dr. King and so many other icons of the civil rights movement? Ernest Withers is probably best known for his civil rights work. He photographed basically every major campaign across the South. He's present when James Meredith is integrating Ole Miss. He's in the room when two men are being charged with the murder of Emmett Till. He's there when King is riding the first desegregated bus. And part of it was that he was just kind of everywhere. He was someone you trusted. He was a piece of the furniture, you know? And, and he was someone who, especially the civil rights leaders, knew and respected and believed would tell the story accurately, right? That, that would document what was happening. And so people were happy to have Ernest around. You know, Andrew Young, uh, one of King's chief lieutenants, told us, you know, that they always answered Ernest's call. If he wanted information, they always gave it to him. And all the while, he was living this second life as an FBI informant during what is now this infamous period of American history where the FBI was in, involved in domestic surveillance, illegal domestic surveillance. Why wouldn't Ernest Withers be valuable to a J. Edgar Hoover at the time? So we have to remember the FBI at the time had no black agents. Right? They couldn't just show up at a civil rights meeting. Um, in fact, this was a time when FBI agents were particularly being recruited by Hoover to be, you know, white guy Republicans from Omaha, right? They had a specific <laughs> look, and, a, and we love Omaha, right? But right, you know what right, I mean, right? right? They had a yeah. very specific, clean-cut look. That is not the best workforce if the thing you're trying to do is infiltrate a black civil rights movement that's playing out primarily in, in urban centers across the country, right? And so these human assets became vitally important for the FBI. People who could be in a room, who knew everyone's name, who would introduce themselves, who could ask for someone's address and it not be suspicious. And so what Ernest ends up being is a sponge of information. Now, he already was one, right? Mm -hmm. He was a local photographer. He knew everybody and their, and their mother and their cousin. He knew where they lived. He yeah. knew when their birthday was, right? So he had a lot of that information. But now the FBI was able to kind of prime him for it and to, and to ask for questions. You know, a lot of what Ernest did was he sold them photographs. Photographs he would take otherwise and that he might otherwise sell to the Associated Press or to the black paper. He'd shoot a protest all day, he'd get all the caption information and then he'd sell a roll of film yeah. to the FBI. And now suddenly, at a time before the internet, before a lot of the databases we now have and law enforcement now has, they now have photographs and names and in some cases addresses and phone numbers for people who they otherwise might not have known how to track. One of the primary threads that runs through the podcast is sort of the moral ambiguity of the day. That in many ways, Mr. Withers didn't have a choice. That when the federal government comes and says, you know, we want information that only you can provide, he didn't really have a choice. It's interesting, right? When you listen to Ernest Withers' family and the one time he ever addressed this before he passed, right, there's an insistence that he was not an informant in the, the worst sense of the word, right? Mm -hmm. That he was someone who was selling photographs, uh, that the FBI was a customer like anyone else, and that also, what was he supposed to do? He's a black man at a time when black men don't even have the right to vote. The federal government has come to him and said, we need to stop the communist infiltration, uh, because that was the pretense under which Hoover uh, harassed the civil rights leaders, including King. And here you have this black man with six children to feed, who's not particularly wealthy, and how do we gauge now, so many years later, if he thought he had a real choice when he was asked to do these things, or if he didn't? As I was listening to the podcast, my ears perked up when I heard the voice of Ambassador Andrew Young. The reason I bring him up is because he told you that he wasn't surprised that there was someone spying on the work that they were doing, that there was an FBI informant in their midst. But he also suggested that he didn't care all that much, that in his mind, he had nothing to hide. The SCLC at the time had nothing to hide. And as he saw it, it was good to be super transparent 
whether it was with the FBI or whomever, about the work that they were doing. That is what Andrew Young said. It's actually interesting because I've gotten a lot of feedback on that particular quote from people, right? I know, I know modern-day activists who are like, what's wrong with Andrew Young? Is he, is he serious? Like, yeah. can, can you believe that? I've heard from other people, oh, I guess that makes sense. I bet those activists are pretty young. Yeah, so they are, right? Yeah. And, and I... I think it cuts in a few different directions. The first is that a lot of the people from the time, people who knew Ernest in real time, have been pretty forgiving of, of this information that's come out. Part of it, I think, is that so much time has passed, right? A lot of this is in, in the rearview mirror. Uh, there's also a reality where, as frustrated and upset as people are about the FBI surveillance, the idea of holding Ernest personally accountable for what was clearly the sins of one of those powerful institutions in American society is something I think a lot of the black activists are willing to, you know, kind of be kind about. Uh, but there are other activists who are furious with him, who, who are really upset. Dick Gregory, when this news initially broke, called him a Judas. I do wonder if we could go back in time and, and interview an Andrew Young, 40 years younger, 50 years younger, if perhaps he might be less generous to Ernest Withers in real time yeah. as he is in retrospect. It's an interesting question. Wesley Lowry, the podcast is a fascinating look at a really important uh, part of American history. Congratulations. Thanks so much for having me. It's available everywhere, wherever you listen to your podcast. <laughs> wherever you listen to your podcast. Appreciate you, man. Finally tonight, a famed civil rights photographer who appears to have also done duty, double duty, for the FBI. Margaret Warner has the story. A freelance photographer for the black press in the 1950s and 1960s, Ernest Withers chronicled landmark moments in the battle for civil rights. He covered the 1955 murder of Emmett Till, the bus boycotts, and protests like the 1968 sanitation worker strike in Memphis. He was treated like an insider and given intimate access to movement leaders like Dr. Martin Luther King. But this week, the Memphis Commercial Appeal reported that Withers also worked as an FBI informant, most probably paid from at least 1968 through 1970. For more, we turn to Earl Caldwell. He reported on the civil rights struggle for the New York Times and knew Withers. He's now a professor at Hampton University's Scripps Howard School of Journalism. And Mr. Caldwell, welcome. Give us first a sense of Ernest Withers and, and how important his work was to this country's understanding of the civil rights movement. Uh, his work was hugely important because he brought back the pictures. You know, you can have a thousand words, but uh, it's the uh, pictures. And he had access. He was on the inside. So he was able to show America things that you couldn't tell America, but he had those he had so many, and he, and he cataloged everything. So I think his work was hugely important. Now, you said yesterday that you were stunned when you heard the news of what the Commercial Appeal was reporting. Why was that? I mean, was it hard to reconcile that with the man you knew? Well, because he was a journalist, and the black journalist had made this commitment to the black community that we weren't going to be spies, we weren't going to be eavesdropping for uh, law enforcement, that we were going to be true to what we said. And I was taken aback because uh, he had, his record comes out that he was not only doing it in such a massive way. Did he ever say anything to you that indicated that this might have been going on? Actually, in our conversations, it was exactly the opposite. We were like uh, 
you know, in this together. We were colleagues. I had no idea, although I was very much aware that the pressure was to be an informant has been, it was very intense, particularly about uh, on people such as Ernest, who was moving through all of these various channels and had this tremendous access. So when you say pressure, what do you mean? Pressure from the FBI? A pressure from the FBI. In my own case, the FBI hounded me, hounded me about being an informant on the Black Panthers, which was the uh, uh, subject of my reporting at that time for the New York Times. And how would they go about it? Well, they call you on the phone, and they start off by saying, listen, all we want you to do is just, you know, what people are saying, what they're, they make it seem like it's so innocent, like it's really nothing, that you're not really spying, you're just helping us out, and that they are trying to, that they're on your side, and it's, make it very engaging, and if you don't have that line there that says, no, that's not what I do, you can get roped in. Now, the, the records that the newspaper got a hold of show nothing about, any, about his motives whatsoever. There is something in the articles about he was under some financial pressure. He'd also been a cop in the past. Was the FBI good at honing in on any potential point of vulnerability like that? Uh, the, uh, that was, uh, see, this is the thing. They wanted everything. So they were, they were always asking everybody, you can do this. And they made it like it was an act of patriotism. You're serving your country. We need you. And it's, and it's so harmless. You can do this. And also, as you say, Ernest did have that background piece of being a police officer. Now, put on your journalist professor's hat. And if you are um, talking to young people about this, how would you want them to look at it? I mean, is this a betrayal of his ethics as a journalist? Is it a betrayal as an African-American who actually embraced the goals of the civil rights movement? I believe, it's, I believe it's all of those things. But let me speak as a journalist. To me, this is a very serious and special trust. It's a bond that you make with the public. People have to believe you. They have to believe that you are who you say that you are, and that's your only purposes in serving the public. We as journalists, we say we represent the public. You can't represent the police department and the, uh, all of these investigative agencies at the same time. You're either one or you're the other. And, and the sad part of this thing with Ernest is a lot of reporters now will suffer because when they go and present their credentials, people will say, how do we know? And yet, in Memphis next month, there's going to be a museum open, the Ernest Withers Museum, with a lot of his photographs, right yeah. in his old studio on Beale Street. Do you think that in the end, you, you will be able to separate the man from the work and that the work will endure? Uh, the work will endure because the people are, uh, they have this, People understand, and they made this trust with Ernest, and they allowed him to come in to all of these places and to do this great work that he did. The work will endure, but there will be another side, and that is this, that people will say to this next generation, they see people coming in, how can we trust you? How do we know? How can we be sure? How do we know that you're not another Ernest Withers?
Earl Caldwell, thank you very much. Thank you. It's my pleasure. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The Quarantine Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The FBI and New York police departments are facing new calls to finally open their records related to the assassination of Malcolm X, shot dead 56 years ago at the Audubon Ballroom in Harlem, February 21, 1965. This comes after the release of a deathbed confession of a former undercover New York police officer who admitted to being part of a broad New York police and FBI conspiracy targeting Malcolm. In the confession, the former officer, Raymond Wood, who died last year, admitted he entrapped two members of Malcolm's security team in another crime, a plot to blow up the Statue of Liberty, just days before the assassination. On Saturday, Ray Wood's cousin, Reggie Wood, read the letter at a news conference at the Shabazz Center in Harlem. It was my assignment to draw the two men into a felonious federal crime so that they could be arrested by the FBI and kept away from managing Malcolm X's Autobahn ballroom door security on February 21st, 1965. In his letter, Raymond Wood also revealed he was inside the Audubon ballroom at the time of Malcolm's assassination. At least one other undercover New York police officer, Gene Roberts, was also inside after infiltrating the security team of the Organization of Afro-American Unity, the group Malcolm founded after leaving the Nation of Islam. Both officers, Wood and Roberts, were part of the Bureau of Special Services and Investigations, or BOSSE, a secretive political intelligence unit of the NYPD nicknamed the Red Squad. Following Malcolm's assassination, police arrested three members of the Nation of Islam for his murder. But questions about the guilt of the men have lingered for decades. In his letter, Raymond Wood openly says one of the men, Thomas Johnson, was innocent and was arrested to, quote, protect my cover and the secrets of the FBI and the NYPD, unquote. Ray Wood's letter echoes claims in recent books by Manning Marable and Les Payne that some of Malcolm's actual assassins were never charged. In a moment, we'll be joined by Raymond Wood's cousin, Reggie Wood, who released his deathbed confession. But first, I want to turn to the words of Malcolm X himself speaking after his home in Queens was firebombed just a week before his assassination, February 14, 1965. My house was bombed. It was bombed by the black Muslim movement upon the orders of Elijah Muhammad. Now, they had come around to—they had planned to do it from the front and the back so that I couldn't get out. They had—they they covered the front completely, the front door. Then they had come to the back, but instead of getting in directly in the back of the house and throwing it this way, they stood at a 45-degree angle and tossed it at the window, so it, it glanced and went onto the ground. And the, the fire hit the window, and it woke up my second oldest baby. Uh, and then it, but the fire burned on the outside of the house. But had that fire, had that one gone through that window, it would have fallen on a six-year-old girl, a four-year-old girl, and a two-year-old girl. And I'm going to tell you, if it had done it, I'd taken my rifle and gone after anybody in sight. I would not wait. Cause in the, and I say that because of this. The police know the criminal operation of the black Muslim movement because they have thoroughly infiltrated it. Because they have thoroughly infiltrated it.
Those are the words of Malcolm X right before his assassination, right after his home was firebombed in February of 1965. Uh, just days later, he was shot seconds after he took the stage at the Audubon Ballroom. We're joined now by Reggie Wood, the cousin of Raymond Wood, author of the new book, The Ray Wood Story, Confessions of a Black NYPD Cop and the Assassination of Malcolm X, still with us, civil rights attorney Ben Crump, who attended that news conference uh, with um, Reggie Wood at the Audubon Ballroom, now the Shabazz Center, where Malcolm X was assassinated 56 years ago. Um, Reggie, thank you so much for joining us. You read parts of the letter um, this weekend. Talk about your cousin, um, Ray Wood, and what you understand happened, the conspiracy he alleges that he was a part of by the FBI and the New York Police Department to assassinate Malcolm X. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Um, Ray was was a complicated man. Uh, I think be based on uh, his past experiences, he, he, he lived with a lot of uh, fear and caution on a daily basis, which he instilled in me over the past 10 years. But uh, Ray was a person that lived as a he, he lived he lived as a as a very quiet and and reserved person because of what he had experienced he he witnessed some horrible things firsthand and also realized that he was a part of it after the fact and so therefore um, ray was told by his handlers that not to repeat anything that he had seen or heard or he would uh, join Malcolm. Therefore, for 46 years, Ray separated himself from the family and um, in fear that he would put us in danger. Now, Ray lived alone many years and he um, finally, in his final years, uh, when he realized that he was, uh, his cancer was uh, reoccurring, he wanted to reconnect with family because he didn't want to die alone. So uh, I volunteered to uh, move him to Florida so that my wife and I could take care of him and get him back and forth to his cancer treatments and things of that nature. And therefore, he trusted me enough to reveal this information and ask me not to uh, say anything until he passed away. But at the same time, not to allow him to take it to his grave. Um, you write in your book, uh, Reggie Wood, he'd spent years living in relative obscurity, wanting to ensure the cops wouldn't preemptively act to silence him. He also feared retribution from society, especially the black community. Ray was ashamed of what he'd been a part of and felt he'd betrayed his own people. Due to his lugubrious feelings about his actions and fear for what might be done to him in retaliation, this 2015 article deeply impacted Ray, and he's talking about this news coverage from February—he um, uh, was talking about uh, the article by Garrett Felber in The Guardian that really laid out uh, your cousin's seminal involvement here and the FBI uh, police involvement in the assassination. Yes, um, that that book really details everything that happened. I felt that 
um, after consulting with, with Mr. Crump, I was looking for the best way to put this information out there. I wasn't sure if it was safe to turn it over to authorities. Therefore, I just wrote everything that Ray told me in into this memoir and made it available to the world so that everyone would see it and, and hear it at the same time. And I think that's the best way to do it. It's a load off of my back because I'm no longer in fear of the government trying to quiet me as well. Hmm. I want to turn to news coverage from February 1965 about the police-orchestrated plot to blow up the Statue of Liberty. This was just days before Malcolm X's assassination. This might be news to a lot of people, even old-time activists. In the video, Raymond Wood is seen being promoted for his role in that plot. The happy ending to the plot was written by a rookie policeman who had been on the force only eight months when he infiltrated the extremist group. His work led police to a quiet New York residential area where the dynamite had been hidden. Another arrested was Khalil Saeed, who police say went to the Statue of Liberty to buy a model and further the plot with the fourth conspirator, Walter Bowl. The hero cop, his face hidden for future undercover work, is promoted on the spot to the rank of detective, a happy climax to a bizarre story. The arrests were carried out on February 16th, just days before Malcolm X was assassinated. And this is very significant, Reggie Wood, as you know, this um, so-called uh, Statue yes. of Liberty plot, because these men were, who were arrested were the security team of Malcolm X, meaning he wouldn't have them there February 21st, a few days later when he was assassinated. That, that's correct. That's correct. Um, as we were doing our research, my research assistant, uh, Lizette Salado, um, really helped me put the pieces together. Uh, we whiteboarded everything that Ray said and, and attempted to connect it to facts that the FBI had released and, and that historians had, had pulled out. And we worked closely with some historians to try to um, corroborate the information that was there. And once we were able to do that, we were able to present that information to Mr. Crump and, and show that this was a legitimate uh, situation that needed to be brought to light. Now, in the 2015 article in The Guardian, historian Garrett Felber reveals notes written by the late Japanese-American activist Yuri Kochiyama. At a meeting held in 1965, uh, she identified Ray Wood to be at the scene of Malcolm X's assassination. She wrote, quote, Ray Woods, she wrote with an S, Ray Woods is said to have been seen also running out of all Audubon, was one of two picked up by police, was the second person running out, Yuri wrote. This appears to substantiate some of the accounts of a second man taken into police custody after the assassination. I spent many hours with Yuri Kochiyama talking to her at assisted living facility at the end of her life in Oakland before she died. Um, can you talk about what happened at the assassination? Because Yuri is right here. She was very close to Malcolm X, up on the stage with him. Um, as well at the end, as after he was shot, that your cousin ran out and was taken away by police. Yes, what, what Ray uh, 
basically explained to me was that once he saw what was going down and he realized what had actually happened after spending time with uh, Mr. Uh, Saeed and Mr. Bo, uh, he was there and he, 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 he reminisced or, or thought about the situation with him coming into the Audubon without being checked. He, he thought about the fact that those guys were in prison uh, as we spoke. And um, he decided he needed to get out of there and as he was leaving, some individuals that knew him from his other undercover work, and, and he had been exposed uh, somewhat from the bombing case, uh, saw him and they attempted to grab him. As they were uh, grabbing him, trying to restrain him, a police officer uh, intervened and, and grabbed Ray and took him into the police car. And, and from there, they took him to the, uh, the precinct and put him into a cell where he sat there for uh, three to four hours, not knowing what was going on. The only information that he had was listening to the chatter on the radio while they were transporting him to the uh, police station. And later that afternoon, the same two gentlemen that told him to go to the Audubon came and removed him from his cell and drove him back home and told him, quote, do not speak of this again, or you will face similar consequences. Did he know Gene Roberts, the other undercover officer, or at least one other that we know of who was there? No, no, he did not. He did not know him. He did not know he was an undercover. He assumed he was part of Malcolm X's team. So, Ben Crump, you ended the last segment, uh, where we want to talk at the end of this segment, and that is the issue of what evidence is out there that the police or the FBI is hiding and what you are calling for. It's interesting that last week a judge ruled, a court ruled, that the disciplinary records of New York police going back for years must be released. De Blasio said they're releasing them, the mayor of New York, not clear if they're being released at this moment. Um, that's disciplinary records. Um, and the police unions have been fighting this tooth and nail. Um, what are you calling for in this case? Well, Amy, thank you for covering this important matter as well. And uh, to Reggie Wood, who has uh, put forth this dying declaration letter from his cousin, uh, Ray Wood, and documented all the corroborating evidence in the memoir that he and Lissette researched to show that everything in that letter it's true. It is legitimate. And that's very important to help exonerate all those black people who were wrongfully convicted by Ray Wood's work, all those people who have been conspired against by the NYPD and the FBI, uh, whether that be Walter Bowe, Khalid Saeed, uh, whether it be uh, Thomas Johnson, who was picked up, who wasn't even at the Audubon ballroom, but to ensure that Ray's cover would not be blown, was arrested and served almost three decades in prison for a crime of uh, killing Malcolm X that they all knew he did not do. And also, Tupac Shakur's mother, Fannie Shakur, part of the Panther 21, 
who Ray Wood testified against, saying that they uh, tried to blow up New York monuments, and therefore, quite literally, she was in prison when she had her prince, Tupac Shakur, because of NYPD and the FBI were conspiring to wrongfully convict them. And as Ray Wood said in his letter, their job was to discredit civil rights organizations and black leaders. And that's why we're calling for a Malcolm X commission to be convened by the United States Congress. So his daughters, but also the people who was affected by these felonious actions of NYPD and the FBI to target black people can be exposed because, Amy, the past is prolonged. As Reggie Wood and I have often taught, the same way they targeted Malcolm X for saying that black people deserve equality by any means necessary, they are targeting young Black Lives Matter activists today, laboring them as black identity extremists. And so we need to have our federal government be held to account for trying to stop black people from exercising their First Amendment rights, but more importantly, for being able to declare that black lives matter over and over again. The war powers descended on Versailles to make peace and redivide colonial territories. From the seat of his self-styled empire in Harlem, Marcus Garvey argued that it was time to give Africa back to black people. Some said it was a ridiculous fantasy, but Garvey's slogan, Africa for the Africans, reverberated around the world as his movement spread through the colonies. In Europe, Garvey began to be seen as a threat. The United States had worked with the British government during World War I, and they continued that after World War I with the focus on Garvey, because the British government was deathly afraid that the Garvey movement was going to spread revolution. They feared the hundreds of thousands of the masses of blacks under his influence. And undoubtedly, Garvey did stir up nationalism. Garvey's Negro World, now published in Spanish, French, and English, carried news of rebellion around the world. In Africa and the Caribbean, colonial authorities banned the newspaper. But with over 500 divisions of the UNIA in 22 countries, Garvey's message could not be stopped. In the United States, black troops returned from World War I with high expectations for change. But they returned to a country that was not ready for equality, a country increasingly suspicious of radical political movements. In this unsettled climate, Garvey's appeal to disgruntled African Americans with military training sounded an alarm. Attorney General Palmer decided that there needed to be a special division of the Justice Department. He called it the General Intelligence Division. And he picked a young Justice Department attorney. He was really unknown at that time, but uh, must, have been, must have been known enough for his diligence. And his name was J. Edgar Hoover. Garvey really gets pinpointed. 
Hoover, the Justice Department, were, were clearly hooked on a fixation on Garvey, which would before long become a vendetta. J. Edgar Hoover wrote to a colleague, Garvey is a notorious Negro agitator, affectionately referred to by his own race as the Negro Moses. Hoover's agents were in the audience at Carnegie Hall when Garvey bragged that the UNIA would soon be strong enough to exact its own form of justice. When those crackers lynch a Negro below the Mason-Dixon line, since it is not safe to lynch a white man in any part of America, we shall press the button and lynch him in Africa. The agent reported that Garvey's address was met with great applause and much excitement. J. Edgar Hoover had long relied on casual informants, but now, in his determination to go after Garvey, Hoover hired the first full-time black agent in the Bureau's history. He was known by a code number. All his reports were signed uh, 800. That was his code. And his job was to go into Harlem and to infiltrate the Garvey movement to try and find evidence that could be used to build a legal case for ultimately getting rid of Garvey. The idea comes to Garvey that black people need a shipping line. And he bases his idea on the fact that the Cunard family has the white star line and the Irish have the green star line. And he says, why shouldn't blacks have the black star line? So it is a vision of grandeur. Black people were routinely Jim Crow on ocean-going liners. Black folk paying, say, for first-class accommodation often had to travel in third-class accommodation. Black people on ships had to eat after the white people had finished eating. So all of these problems Garvey was trying to address through a shipping corporation. His ships would carry more than passengers. Garvey envisioned commercial trade among black communities around the world with produce, raw materials, and manufactured goods transported on UNIA vessels. The Black Star Line was in some ways Garvey's Empire State Building. It was this monument to black commerce in the same way that the Empire State Building was this citadel of white capitalism. And it represented the ability of black people to seize the day and to have their own economy. Garvey offered Black Star Line stock for sale in 1919, promising his investors liberation and large profits as they slept. My parents spent a small fortune in Garvey shares. They were $5 a piece in those days, which was a lot of money. And my mother had to remind my father that uh, there was food and things to be bought because he was buying shares. And Daddy had those on his dresser. And I remember reaching out to touch them. And Daddy said, touch them and feel the power that the black man will someday know. Just months after his first stock offering, 
Garvey stunned the world with the purchase of the Black Star Line's first ship. Let our steamships sail the high seas. Not one, not two, but hundreds of them. The stronger we become upon land and sea, the more will be the respect shown to us and the greater will be the glory. The SS Yarmouth, a 33-year-old wartime coal boat that Garvey planned to rename the Frederick Douglass, would set sail with an all-black crew under the command of Joshua Coburn, a black captain. One bright November morning in 1919, Garveyites assembled on the pier at 135th Street in Harlem to witness the launching of the Yarmouth. A spectator said, we watched people jump up and down, throw up their hats and handkerchiefs, and cheer while the Yarmouth backed from the wharf and slowly glided down the North River. The ship appeared to embark on a spectacular ocean voyage, but because Garvey had not finished paying for it, the Yarmouth went only as far as the 23rd Street Pier. But when the Yarmouth finally made its maiden voyage, it was cause for an international celebration. The president of Cuba threw a banquet in honor of the crew, and members of his cabinet purchased chairs in the Black Star Line. In Costa Rica, workers descended on the docks to shower the Yarmouth with fruits and flowers. It was announced that one of the ships of the Black Star Line would be coming to Panama and going through the canal. As a very small boy at the time, and my brother and I were given packed lunches, sandwiches, and drinks, and were packed off to a place called Christchurch by the Sea, waiting to see this Garvey ship arrive. We got there at about 9, 10 in the morning, midday, no ship, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, no ship, but we were still there waiting. 9 o'clock, no ship. At about 9.30, 10, my brother put me on his back and we were on the way home. But the ship never actually came. There's no denying the fact that Garvey's Black Star steamship line was a wonderful symbol. It was a powerful symbol. But it was nothing more than that, I think, a symbol. The fact that people would come down to the docks waiting for these ships in some ways is metaphoric for the wishful thinking that was largely at the heart of the Garvey movement. Garvey was betrayed by the few people he trusted to get the Black Star Line afloat. The man he asked to inspect the Yarmouth turned out to be an informant for J. Edgar Hoover. And his hand-picked captain, Joshua Coburn, convinced Garvey to pay six times what the ship was worth, and then took a kickback from the purchase price. Yet Garvey quickly raised and spent $200,000 on two more ships. And making a purchase of those liners without being led by experts, he was deceived about uh, the condition of those of those ships and overpaid for, for their own, what their value should have been. 
it was a disaster for the movement and turned out to be a disaster for Mr. Garvey. Hello, I'm Arthur Kent. Welcome to History Undercover. For more than 20 years, a Mississippi government agency, ostensibly funded to promote the state's image, actually secretly spied on many of its own citizens. Called the Mississippi State Sovereignty Commission, it kept files on tens of thousands of people. Their so-called crime was sympathizing with the civil rights movement that was threatening a way of life. Our program, based on documents that were secret for decades, looks at this commission and the crimes its members committed and covered up. Join us as History Undercover presents Mississippi State Secrets. I don't like it. Why not? I don't like a nigger. Oh, we said kill them all. We are tired of being murdered. We are tired of being shot down. The fight for civil rights in America in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s was a time of terror and courage, murder and triumph. Some of the bloodiest confrontations were fought in Mississippi. The only way we can win this fight is to defeat the enemy, to destroy the enemy before the enemy destroys us. In 1956, the Mississippi State Legislature created an agency to monitor, inhibit, and destroy civil rights activities throughout the state. It was called the Mississippi State Sovereignty Commission. Although it wasn't secret, many of its activities were. After 21 years of operation, the state legislature voted in 1977 to close down the commission and seal its files for 50 years. The secrets remained hidden until 1998, when a nine-year court battle to force open the files was finally won by the American Civil Liberties Union. That's, you. That's me there. I wanted to present to you the papers that you requested. 21 years is a long time to wait to see what's in here. The files contain 132,000 documents with information on more than 87,000 citizens. Their pages reveal the sordid details of how this taxpayer-supported agency spent hours behind closed doors monitoring every facet of the civil rights movement. But I'm not going to allow anybody to pull me so low as to use the very method of evil. They also expose an even darker role. The long secret files reveal that this state-sanctioned agency had close ties to the violence perpetrated by the Ku Klux Klan. I'm afraid that some of that violence has to be laid at the feet of the Sovereign Commission. The giving of a cloak of respectability, of legal respectability, to uh, tactics that were designed to discourage civil rights activity in Mississippi played right into the hands of the most violent citizens of our state. And as a consequence, uh, people's lives were lost. For many Southerners, fierce opposition to the civil rights movement began on Monday, May 17, 1954. 
On that date, in Brown versus the Board of Education of Topeka, the United States Supreme Court ruled that racial segregation in America's public schools was unconstitutional. There is nothing in the United States Constitution to declare that white and colored children must attend the same public school. When the Supreme Court decision came down, it was characterized by some of the political leaders in the state as being a day of infamy. There was a concern that uh, if segregation ended somehow, the sun really wouldn't come up in the morning. But for many white Mississippians in the mid-1950s, sharing power was out of the question. In 1956, to fight the growing civil rights movement, more than 75,000 Mississippians joined the White Citizens Council. This is the Citizens Council Forum, the American viewpoint with a southern accent. A national organization whose banners read, states' rights and racial integrity. And many prominent uh, business leaders in the state and political leaders in the state were active members of the White Citizens Council, which was committed, totally committed, to the maintenance of segregation in all forms. In his successful race for governor in 1955, Attorney General James Coleman promised to fight the federal government and federal courts on integration in order to protect what he said was the sovereignty of the state of Mississippi. In his January 1956 inaugural address, he made his move. I'm sure that you will not fail to enact an appropriate state sovereignty bill, which will enable us during the next two years to maintain a successful fight for preserving the separation of the races in this state. Three months later, House Bill number 880 created the State Sovereignty Commission. It passed overwhelmingly in the legislature, but there were a number of us in the legislature at that time who felt that it could be a vehicle that would, could be abused in the future. The bill mandated that the commission would be composed of 12 members, including the governor, the lieutenant governor, the house speaker, and the attorney general. In addition, there would be two members of the Senate appointed by the lieutenant governor, three members of the House appointed by the speaker, and three citizen members appointed by the governor. The governor served as chairman of the commission, which had a budget of $250,000 a year. Speakers were sent all over the United States to advance the cause of segregation in the South, and journalists from around the country were invited to come to Mississippi and see for themselves how well we were doing uh, in a segregated society. As in every community in Mississippi, there is segregation of the races. Drinking fountains are segregated. Restrooms are segregated. The commission even produced this film documenting the benefits of segregation. It was viewed by civic clubs, universities, and church groups in 27 states across the country. Just as the pattern of segregation is evident in forest, so too is the real interest both races have in each other's welfare. Talked about, oh, what a wonderful state Mississippi is, and we love the way it is, and interviewed people. And they said, oh, yes, we're happy with segregation, and, and we wouldn't want it any other way. We have far less crime and our race in Mississippi in proportion to the population than in any state in the nation. It was a disaster, I think it's fair to say. The effort to uh, convince the rest of the country that uh, we were right on the issue of segregation was doomed to failure. 
But the Sovereignty Commission wasn't only involved in public relations. There was another part of its work that was covert and much more dangerous. The Commission used many former FBI agents as special investigators. It also hired independent detective agencies in different parts of the state. Using the retired agents and private detectives, the Commission began an intense campaign investigating and intimidating suspected civil rights activists and their supporters. The most secret aspects of the Sovereignty Commission, of course, were the mechanics of their investigative process, of sending agents out and, uh, in effect, spying on, uh, on citizens of this state. They were basically you know, sending these letters to their employers. We just thought you'd like to know that uh, teacher so-and-so uh, has been involved in you know, civil rights activities or believed to have been involved. I mean, a lot of times these people weren't even involved in civil rights activities necessarily. They just happened to maybe be in certain place at a certain time, so therefore they assumed they were involved in civil rights activity, and they lost their jobs. The commission also maintained a paid network of spies and informers. You had black people and white people working for the Sovereignty Commission, spying on their neighbors, spying on their friends. They would put pressure on, on black people, and especially middle-class black people, who were beholden to the system. That is, if you were a school teacher and your livelihood depended upon working for the county government or the city school system, uh, you were forced so often to do things against your will. The information, often gathered from illegal wiretaps and break-ins, was given to local law enforcement and white supremacist groups. It was like a police state. The Sovereignty Commission was really using Gestapo tactics uh, and spying on the citizens. Uh, it, it, there was an element of fear that I can't describe. The Sovereignty Commission viewed what they were doing as a war. And, and uh, so in terms of casualties, they, they weren't concerned. In fact, that was something to brag about. It was kind of like the generals, you know, coming back from war saying, well, look how many dead we have. As the war of innuendo, hate, and violence raged, the number of innocent victims targeted by the commission would begin to mount. One of those was Dr. Gilbert Mason of Biloxi, Mississippi. They set upon us with sticks, with lead pipes, with chains, baseball bats. In September 1957, segregationists in Mississippi watched in horror as nine black students were admitted to Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas. This only stiffened the determination of Mississippians to fight integration, and at least for the next two years, they were successful. Then, in 1959, Ross Barnett was elected governor of Mississippi. The war against integration and the federal government had found its greatest champion. The racial integrity of our people is not for sale on the political auction block. With the election of Governor Barnett in 1959, the uh, Sovereignty Commission really came into its own as an investigative agency. And it became almost a tool of the White Citizens Council. Some of the most extremely rabid racists in the state. There's nothing ordinarily that can prevent us from being victorious. We can win. We stopped Hitler and he had to be stopped. And anyone who thinks that that kind of thing can't happen in this country, just, they don't know human nature. 
I saw Rose Barnett come into the stadium in Mississippi and the same kind of thing happening, you know. 40,000 people standing up cheering for a man whose ideology was the same as Adolf Hitler's. You just put blacks in the place of Jews and you've got it. We must be stronger than the enemy. We must be strong enough to crush the enemy. And he basically doubled the amount of agents that they had. Uh, they began to use uh, detective agencies to conduct the spying and infiltrate civil rights groups. The Sovereignty Commission very much kind of ratcheted up the in intensity uh, beginning in like the early 60s. Through its network of spies, the commission learned of plans in 1960 to desegregate the beaches in Biloxi. One of the leaders was a newly arrived black physician. When I came to Biloxi, I didn't see any black folks on the beach. And my inquiry from the local people said that, you know, they, if you go down there, they'll spit on you and insult you and what have you. So I concluded that this was not dignified and uh, unacceptable. The Sovereignty Commission sent one of their agents, a man named Zach Van Landingen, to talk to Dr. Mason. He asked me, how much of the sand beach do you want? I said, every damn inch of it, and told him why. It flew in my face and, and, and violated my dignity. When Mason wouldn't back down, the Sovereignty Commission set out to destroy him, using the press to spread malicious rumors about his character and his medical practice. You know, they actually got uh, newspapers to uh, print whatever propaganda that they wanted them to print, or in some cases they got them to actually kill stories that they were working on, which might make the civil rights activists look good. Soon, Dr. Mason was receiving death threats from the Ku Klux Klan. We had firebombing of homes, of cars, and uh, harassments and telephone calls. It was difficult to tell the citizen council who were prime movers in the Sovereignty Commission from the Ku Klux Klan. The focal point for much of the tension here in Biloxi centers around the activities of a Dr. Gilbert Mason, a Negro physician who has been trying to lead his people down to the beaches to bathe. Mason persisted, and on April 24, 1960, he and fellow churchmen, friends, and a troop of black Boy Scouts tried to enter the ocean in Biloxi. Sovereignty Commission documents reveal that the commission knew in advance that the local police would stand aside as a mob of nearly 400 whites viciously attacked them. And by the time we got there, they were waiting for us. And they set upon us with sticks, with lead pipes, with chains, baseball bats, and black folks were beaten to the ground and blooded. And today it's rather deserted. But it was the scene of a tremendous free-for-all only a few days ago between Negroes and whites. The beach was pumped in with government money and public taxes maintain it. This leads to the controversy wherein the Negroes feel that they have the same right as anyone else to use the beach. We plan to be felt, we plan to be heard, and we plan to act to secure the right to the beach. Three years later, he led another wade-in. This time there was no violence, but 71 people, including Dr. Mason, were arrested and found guilty of trespassing. Mason appealed, but it would take eight years of legal battles reaching all the way to the Supreme Court of the United States before he would finally win. I walked along Memorial Day and, and watched the black couples and the black children frolicking in the sand and wading in the water. 
I felt great about that. Although Dr. Mason finally prevailed, many others subjected to Sovereignty Commission intimidation did not. And not all of them were black. We must identify the traitors in our midst. We must eliminate the cowards from our front lines. Some of the worst victims were whites. Some of them were literally drummed out of the state as a result of the investigations by the Sovereignty Commission. You know, Horace Germany was a Church of God preacher born and reared in Neshoba County, Mississippi, in a very, very rural area. And he wanted to come back to the state and build a school for, he wasn't even talking integration, for young black Church of God ministers. And the, the, the wrath came down on him. The Sovereignty Commission began investigating Reverend Germany in 1956. His first offense was inviting Negroes into his home for meals. The investigators go out to Horace Germany's farm and take the license plate of everyone who comes and goes there. The investigators would deliberately drop this information, you know, that uh, all this race mixing out here. By 1959, the commission was secretly reading Germany's mail and had assigned an agent to shadow his house. There was a man who would drive by our house every day in a taxi, and he was like a spy. Apparently he was hired by the Sovereignty Commission, and uh, he would come by and check on to see if any blacks were at our house. The next year, Governor Barnett sent his attorney general to speak with Reverend Germany. There was a time that Governor Ross Barnett had conveyed to the Attorney General Joe Patterson that he was to tell us, or tell my dad, that if he didn't get out of Mississippi in 24 hours that he would be killed. And it wasn't a veiled threat, it was an out-and-out -out threat. You either leave or you die. Not long afterward, when two of Reverend Germany's four children were home alone, a mob descended on their house. I recall this stream of cars that was endless started driving past our house up into our yard and people started getting out, yelling obscenities, threats. This time, no one was hurt. But two weeks later, when Reverend Germany was in town, 20 men surrounded him. And then these men just closed in on Daddy and they started beating him up. They had blackjacks, billy clubs, guns, and they hit him in the head, they hit him in the face, they knocked his teeth out. Uh, they knocked him on the ground and, they, and Daddy never struck back at him. But Reverend Germany was alive, and with the help of his students and family, he was able to get to a hospital. Well, he was there for a short time when the nurses came in, the nuns did, and they took him up into the attic of the hospital. And they kept him there for three days because the White Citizens Council was scouring the town trying to find Daddy because they wanted to finish what they hadn't finished before. But they never did find him, and the nuns wouldn't tell him. Germany was finally concerned enough about the safety of his family to leave Mississippi. He moved to Kendleton, Texas, where he finally was able to establish a college for black preachers. Daddy won, and his cause won, and, and black people won, and, and we won, and, and right won, and good won, and, and God won. The files of the Mississippi State Sovereignty Commission contain countless examples of ordinary people, teachers, doctors, farmers, housekeepers, college students, and others, whose lives were put at risk and often ruined 
because of the agency's strong-arm tactics. One of those was Mabel Warsham, a divorced waitress living in Grenada, Mississippi in 1964. Mabel Warsham had her, her children taken away, you know, by the Sovereignty Commission. I didn't think I was being watched. I was being watched. They're, they were there till I went to bed at night, and they were there when I got up of the morning. Two men in a suit in a car. Mabel Warsham's life was shattered when members of the Sovereignty Commission heard she'd given birth to a baby fathered by a black man. To them, that was the height of sin, so to speak, it was interracial uh, dating or, or marriage or sex. At the time, Warsham was fighting her ex-husband for custody of their two children. The local constable, Sheriff Suggs Ingram, and an agent sent by the Sovereignty Commission, Tom Scarborough, demanded to see her newborn baby. I knew Mr. Ingram, you know, but I didn't know this man that was with him. He told me his name and was uh, he was from Jackson. I had to let them in or they would kick my door in especially because Mr. Ingram was wearing guns. They examined the infant, wanting to know if he had mixed blood. They looked at his hair and they looked at his fingernails. They warned Warsham that if she didn't leave Grenada, she and her child might be found dead. I was afraid. When somebody threatens to kill you, you know, and throw you in a river, chain you and throw you in the river, I think you'd be afraid too. I was afraid. I was afraid for me, and I was afraid for my baby. Two days after the interrogation, Warsham lost her custody fight for her two older children. In court, when they took my two boys away, and I got up to talk, and the judge, Judge Cofer, told me if I didn't sit down, he would have me arrested and put in jail right then. So I didn't get to say anything. Warsham left Mississippi with her newborn child, the sheriff, and Agent Scarborough watched her go. The day that I left there, they sit there and watch me load my car, and uh, they followed me to the city limits. Unless you've lost a child, you won't ever know what I went through. Mabel Warsham was not trying to challenge the system, but many of those targeted by the Sovereignty Commission were. One of the most vocal and powerful was the NAACP field secretary in Mississippi, Medgar Evers. Medgar Evers had this personality. I mean, he was just a, a genuine man who was really committed to changing uh, the life chances of uh, African Americans and other people in Mississippi. The Sovereignty Commission files reveal that as early as 1958, the commission was using all its resources to try to find anything incriminating on Evers. The files also reveal a chilling letter that was sent from a man by the name of Byron de la Beckwith. He begged Governor Coleman to be allowed to help rid Mississippi of the disease of integration and boasted of being an expert marksman. I remember distinctly one individual uh, calling with uh, a pistol on the other end and he hit the cylinder and of course uh, you could hear that it was a revolver. He said, this is for you. The president faces the racial crisis. On June 11, 1963, President John F. Kennedy made a historic television address. And this nation, for all its hopes and all its boasts, will not be fully free until all its citizens are free. That night, at 12.20 a.m., Evers returned from an NAACP meeting. 
As he pulled into his driveway, a sniper was lying in wait 150 feet away. Once Evers got out of his car, the gunman fired one shot from a high-powered rifle, dropped the gun, and fled. The bullet ripped into Evers, who staggered and collapsed in a pool of blood. Evers died on the way to the hospital. The fingerprints found on the murder weapon were those of Byron de la Beckwith. I would like for everyone to search their own souls. I think it's time for everything to come to the light and for all of us to work even harder to make this nation the type of nation it should be. Medgar Evers was buried in Arlington National Cemetery. In 1964, two separate trials ended in mistrials when each of the all-white juries deadlocked. Byron de la Beckwith walked free. The 12-man all-white jury held the fate of Byron de la Beckwith in their hands for nearly 24 hours, and Judge Leon Hendrick dismissed them after he polled each member and got answers like, we are hopelessly deadlocked. There's no possible chance of getting together, Your Honor. District Attorney William Waller, who had the unpopular job of prosecuting a white man for a Negro's death, was asked about the outcome. Well, we felt like we put on a good case and that the uh, evidence amply justified a guilty verdict, but what was done was in the province of the jury. With a bit of help, as it turned out. Jerry Mitchell, an investigative reporter for Mississippi's Clarion Ledger, got a look at the Sovereignty Commission files when they were briefly opened by the ACLU in 1989. He discovered several important documents that implicated the commission in jury tampering in both de la Beckwith trials. The documents reveal that a commission investigator was asked by de la Beckwith's defense attorney to conduct illegal background checks on prospective members of the jury. His three-page report was given to the defense as well as being entered into the Sovereignty Commission files. It detailed the jurors' racial views as well as their ancestry. It listed members of the White Citizens Council as being fair and impartial. So at the same time that the state is attempting to prosecute Beckwith for the murder of Evers, this other arm of the state, the Sovereignty Commission, is secretly helping out his defense, trying to get him acquitted. It was that revelation that led prosecutors to reopen the case against Dilla Beckwith, now 68 years old. He was tried a third time and on February 5, 1994, found guilty of the murder of Medgar Evers. He was sentenced to life in prison. All I want to do is say, yay, Medgar, yay, yay, yay. It's about the truth, it's about uncovering the truth. And what's amazing to me is to be able to continue to find out new things about these things that happened back in the 50s and 60s that we didn't know. Somebody had tipped them off. It was most likely a contact with the State Sovereignty Commission. There would be other revelations to come involving the Sovereignty Commission's role in the murder of civil rights workers Andrew Goodman, James Cheney, and Michael Schwerner. In 1963, Earl Johnston, Governor Ross Barnett's former press secretary, became chairman of the Sovereignty Commission. My job was to gather information 
about any people or any groups that had planned in any way uh, marches or demonstrations or even seizures of property. So I could refer that information to the people who would want to know about it. In June 1964, as part of a civil rights campaign known as Freedom Summer, scores of young activists from across the country and around the world invaded Mississippi to help register black voters. People should be expected to get beaten, they should expect to spend in jail, and it may go beyond the summer when they're in jail, and that they should expect possibly somebody to get killed. One of the people the commission was watching was a civil rights agitator from New York named Michael Schwerner. That month, the Ku Klux Klan firebombed a church in Longdale, Mississippi. Michael Schwerner went to investigate, along with James Cheney, a local organizer, and Andrew Goodman, a volunteer who had arrived from New York that day. Shortly after, their car was stopped by Meridian Deputy Sheriff Cecil Price. Price knew exactly who they were because of information provided by the Sovereignty Commission. A month earlier, one of the Commission's spies, known only as Operator 79 and thought to be a volunteer at Freedom Summer, had stolen photos and application information about Schwerner and other Freedom Summer volunteers from their field office in Jackson, Mississippi. They were actively involved in spying on him. They were writing down, okay, here's what he's driving, here's how old he is, here's his date of birth, here's his license number, here's the, you know, the license number on his car, and um, all this information was collected and then traded with the Meridian Police Department. And the Meridian Police Department is made up of at least half clan, so that information is not too far of a stretch to think that the information the Sovereignty Commission had wound up in the hands of Klansmen. Price immediately spread the word that Goatee, the police code name for Schwerner, was in his custody. Delmar Dennis was a former member of the Klan who turned informant for the FBI. They knew about Goatee because somebody had tipped them off that this was the key um, uh, civil rights leader in the Meridian area. It was most likely a contact with the State Sovereignty Commission. Price held the boys long enough for a group of Klansmen, allegedly assembled by a man named Edgar Ray Killen, to arrive. Price then released the boys. The Klan followed their car out of town, overtook the young men in a desperate car chase, and stopped them. One Klan member reached into the car and pulled first Michael Swerner by the collar, and he said, you're that nigger-loving SOB. And with that, he shot him in the heart. Andy Goodman never uttered a sound, never said a word. Shot him in the heart, dropped him onto the body of Michael Swinner. And with that, James Cheney was trying to make an escape out the car and across the ditch and into the woods. And uh, he was shot by other people. To the outside world, it seemed as if the boys had just vanished. But new information revealed in the commission files shows its members knew what had happened and who was to blame. Yet after examining the boys' burned-out station wagon, a Sovereignty Commission investigator concluded that there were no signs of foul play, and even that the civil rights workers may have staged the scene themselves. The Sovereignty Commission was regularly writing reports about how this, this all may be a hoax and how that uh, there was no evidence of any clan in this area. Have you seen the uh, spot down here, sir? That's right. What do you think of this? I believe them jokers planned it and sitting off up in New York laughing at us Mississippi folk. Well, I believe it's a big publicity hoax, but 
If they're dead, I feel like they asked for it. In fact, Sheriff Lawrence Rainey, the police chief in the county in which the boys had been stopped, had been filmed at a Klan meeting. I would like at this time to call Sheriff Lawrence A. Rainey from Neshoba County to the platform for a statement. Are you proud he's here? This is a CBS News special report, the search in Mississippi. The disappearance was making international headlines. President Lyndon Johnson brought in the FBI, which conducted one of the largest manhunts in its history. As the days dragged on, Andrew Goodman's mother made a plea to the citizens of Mississippi. I want to beg them to cooperate in every way possible in the search for these three boys and to come forward with any information of any kind which will help in the search. After the news came on that the boys were missing, I got a call from a local member of the Klan who said everybody should lay low. Clearly the Sovereignty Commission had staked these young men out, again especially Cheney and, and Swerner, and they knew about their activities. They were working in conjunction with the law enforcement officials in these places. Forty-four days after their disappearance, the badly decomposed bodies of the boys were found buried 15 feet deep under an earthen dam. The commission may not have pulled the trigger, but many researchers believe they had loaded the gun. In this county, Andrew Goodman, James Cheney, and Michael Swerner were brutally murdered. And I believe in my heart that the murderers are somewhere around me at this moment. Yeah! Earl Johnston was director of the Sovereignty Commission at the time. They all came down here. They all knew when they were trained up in Oxford, Ohio, that there were probably going to be some and be in danger. They didn't come down here with their eyes closed. They knew that could happen. And they came on anyway. 21 men, including Sheriff Rainey and Cecil Price, were arrested on federal charges in connection with the murders. But only Sam Bowers, Imperial Wizard of the KKK, and six others were convicted on conspiracy charges. They each served six years. But since the opening of the commission files, prosecutors are looking at new evidence that may put Killen, the alleged ringleader who still proclaims his innocence, on trial for murder. We've got 40,000 pages of investigation. I really can't find an excuse why Mississippi didn't investigate this thing themselves and prosecute this case back in those days. They should have. We're going to try to do something about that. But the Klan's violence would not be limited to the Mississippi Freedom Summer. We were fearful that things would happen that did happen. We just didn't know they would try to take the whole family. In 1964, in Mississippi alone, there were 80 beatings, 35 shootings, and 68 bombings or burnings of churches, businesses, and homes. Many of those under attack were being watched by the Mississippi State Sovereignty Commission. The Sovereignty Commission operated outside uh, the legitimate bounds of legal investigative procedures, subjected many innocent people to an intrusion into their lives, into their private lives, indirectly in some instances uh, contributing to their death. 
One of those people was farmer and store owner Vernon Damer. For eight years, the commission put him on its target list of ringleaders and troublemakers. They got interested in Vernon Damer in the late 1950s. Vernon Damer was very much involved in the NAACP and civil rights activities, particularly voting rights. He wanted to make it possible so that black people will have a chance of earning a better living. Vernon was very successful, but he knew if we could ever get the black person to be able to register and vote, we would be able to select people who were controlling our lives. To Vernon Damer, the right to vote was sacred, but in Mississippi, it could also be dangerous. And he would go take anybody that he could get to register. He would take them in our car. They didn't use their car, because our car tags number was out there already. He would go with them, stay up in the second clerk office until they fill out the application, and then take them back home. If they didn't have the money to pay the poll tax, he would pay it for them. As Damer worked to encourage the black community, the commission was working to destroy him. They were typically looking at, at all those things, anything that they could find on Vernon Damer and, and others as well to discredit them, you know, or was their credit bad? In 1964, when Damer became president of the Hattiesburg NAACP, his credit rating mysteriously changed. They canceled insurance on the house, on his farm equipment, the Farm Bureau of all people's canceled insurance. They'd send a check back. While the Sovereignty Commission was trying to ruin Damer economically, the Ku Klux Klan was trying to kill him. Vernon always carried a gun with him. He had a gun with him on a cotton picker, he had a gun with him on a tractor. He always had ammunition with him. In 1966, in the middle of a freezing night in January, members of the Ku Klux Klan surrounded the Damer home. I was the first one to wake that night, and I was screaming to Vernon to get up. I believe they've got us this time. The eve of the house were burning. The car horn was blowing. The shots was coming in. And Vernon was yelling to me, try to get the children out while I hold them off. Eight Klansmen set fire to the house and then began shooting into it. With the flames searing his lungs, Damer fired back while his wife and two children desperately tried to escape the fire. I hit the window so hard that I fell out on the ground. And the next thing I know, Vernon was handing Betty out to the window to me. I don't know how Betty got burned. She was burned up here on the forehead. Both arms were burned. And Vernon was burned. As the Klansmen made their escape, Damer's sister arrived and drove the family to the hospital. The next morning, Vernon Damer died from his burns. His four older sons, all of them in the military, arrived at the ruins of what was once their home to comfort their mother and to attend their father's funeral. The day after the funeral, Vernon Damer's voter registration card arrived in the mail. He came after we buried him, though. We buried Vernon by the time he got his car. So he literally died before he ever got the chance to cast his ballot, the thing that he fought his whole life for. One of the main suspects in the attack was KKK leader Sam Bowers, who was free on bond while he was appealing his conviction for the Cheney, Schwerner, and Goodman murders. He was tried three times in the Damer case. Each ended in deadlock juries. 
those in charge of Mississippi's politics and government, they was just as guilty as the Klan. They didn't care what the Klans were doing to us. Ironically, it would be the Sovereignty Commission's own files that would finally bring Sam Bowers to justice. In March 1998, 32 years after the Damer murder, the secret commission files revealed that Bowers had admitted to an FBI informant he had tampered with the jury during his 1968 trial. That was enough to put Bowers on trial again. In August 1998, Sam Bowers was convicted of the murder of Vernon Damer and sentenced to life imprisonment. I just closed my eyes, because I knew I was going to bust out crying, but they were tears of joy. By October 1969, when the United States Supreme Court ruled that Mississippi's public schools must be integrated immediately, the once fearsome Sovereignty Commission finally ran out of steam. You know, the passage of the Voting Rights Act, to a certain extent, made them realize that, hey, we're, you know, this game is up. Now they had to recognize that was the law of the land, and were they going to obey the law, or were they going to break the law? When Governor Waller was elected governor in 1971, I was elected lieutenant governor the same year. And by virtue of our position, here's his governor, mine as lieutenant governor, we found ourselves ex officio members of the Sovereignty Commission. By this time, the Sovereignty Commission was uh, a, a fairly uh, weak and inconsequential um, agency. But it still had uh, a staff of uh, agents and investigators. In 1973, Waller vetoed the budget for the Sovereignty Commission, effectively shutting it down. Yet the Commission's files remained available for use by the state legislature and other state officials. In January 1977, a bill to repeal the act that established the Commission and destroy its files was introduced. But William Winter, now governor, opposed the planned destruction. Well, they represented a chapter in our history, a, a dark chapter, but one that uh, I felt needed to be preserved. We learned some very harsh lessons. We learned in the first place we were on the wrong side. There were those who told us that if we just stuck together, if the white people of Mississippi just stick together, there's no force uh, on earth that can change this system of segregation. Many people believe that. It's no use in trying to oppress a group of people. You have to keep yourself down in order to them down. Somehow or another, they will get strict to rise up against you. And that's what we did in the 60s. We rose up against them. And we won the battle. We haven't come all the way where we hope to be, but we own our way. Byron de la Beckwith, who was finally convicted of murdering Medgar Evers, died in prison in January 2001. His funeral was attended by members of the Klan, the eulogy delivered by a white supremacist pastor. Also in 2001, Mississippians voted on whether to redesign their state flag or keep the existing flag and its Confederate emblem. By a two-to-one margin, voters elected to retain their existing flag which is now the only one in America dominated by a symbol of the Confederacy. For the History Channel, I'm Arthur Kent. Thanks for watching.
camera roll 3088, sound roll 341. Okay. Bill, can you describe to me the circumstances under which you began working for the FBI? Uh, it was in probably 1967. Um, I was with a guy one night, a friend of mine, and um, we were drinking beer and we decided to go joyride. And we jumped in a car and stole it. And we were driving around the city of Chicago for uh, oh, 45 minutes and decided to leave the state to go visit a relative in another state. And um, we had an accident out of state. And prior to the accident, we had walked in a pool hall and was shooting pool. And at this, uh, at the door, you had to register your phone number and address. And we wrote down our names and phone numbers, then went and shot a game of pool, and then came out and had an accident. And we fled the accident on, uh, on foot, um, messed around in the city a while, and then caught a bus back to Chicago. And uh, oh, about three, four months later, I got a call from uh, this FBI agent by the name of Roy Mitchell. And um, he told me that he knew what I had done. And we talked, we went around a, a couple of times, and he said something like, well, you know, ain't a, there's no need in you trying to bullshit me. I know you did it, but it's no big thing. He said, I'm sure we can work it out. And um, I think a few few months passed before I heard from him again. And um, one day I got a call and he told me that uh, <clears throat> it was payback time. He said that uh, I want you to go and see if you can join the Black Panther Party and if you can, give me a call. Can I just interrupt and have yeah. you start that part about joining the Panther Party? But tell me again how old you were and that it was not that it was uh, <clears throat> FBI agent? Mm -hmm. I think I was about 19, 18, 19 years old. And um, the FBI agent's name was Roy Mitchell. And um, he called me up on the phone and, and, and uh, recanted uh, the crime, pretty much. Um, I tried to deny it, but he had, had the evidence. And he said, basically, it was no problem, that we could work it out, that I wasn't any any serious problems that he couldn't deal with. and. Um, a few months, three three months maybe passed uh, before he asked me to join the Black Panther Party. Now, what did Mitchell ask you to do? Well, he didn't give me any specific instructions at that point. He just said... What did he say instead of he? Roy said, basically, um, just go and see if you can join the Black Panther Party. I understand they, they're recruiting Panther members. So why don't you go down to the office and see if you can join. If you get in, give me a call back. So um, the next day, <clears throat> I uh, got on the bus and went down to the office of Black Panther Party. It was located on Western and Madison. And um, walked in the office, about three or four Panthers in the office. And I think I was about the fifth member in the Chicago chapter to join. Um, <clears throat> had this big uh, office building on this. And up on the second floor, they had about five or six offices. And um, <clears throat> very little personnel to run things. So positions, uh, it was easy to get a position. So they appointed me as, uh, as a security captain. Um, that was the first time I met Fred Hampton and uh, 
Uh, he was the chairman, the spokesman for the party, and uh, Bobby Rush was the Minister of Defense. He was uh, Huey P. Newton's deputy, uh, which was a top man in, in the state of uh, Illinois at that time. What did you think about the Panthers at that time? <coughs> what, what framework did you understand them in? What did you thought about the civil rights movement? And how did they fit into uh, your understanding of politics? And, and, uh... I. Uh, <laughs> I grew up in a middle-class neighborhood, and I had very little idea of, of, of I was apolitical. Um, the Panthers I had heard of only from a recent article, I think, that had occurred in the paper. Huey P. Newton had just been in a shootout with the, with the Oakland Police Department, and one of them had died, and um, there was a lot of press about that. But uh, prior to the articles I had read about Huey P. Newton, I knew nothing of the Black Panther Party. In fact, the day I joined, I was pretty sure it was just another gang, unlike, uh, not unlike the, the Blackstone Rangers or other Cobras or something. Um, I had no idea of uh, anything about their politics. What did you begin to learn as you, as you did join, and, and uh, what kind of Well, um, almost immediately after uh, <clears throat> I joined the Panthers, uh, probably within 10 days, I began to realize that the Black Panther Party was a little bit more sophisticated than a gang. Um, the orientation process, uh, the attention they gave to, to the political climate uh, around the country, uh, had me going there for a while, um, and at one point, well, yeah, okay, um, they had, um, I think the first set of reference books I saw inside the Black Panther Party was the selective works of Mao Zedong, which I had begun to associate with communism. And uh, it wasn't too long thereafter that I started seeing books uh, like the Manifesto, um, the Communist Manifesto of Karl Marx, and then the selected works of, um, collected works of Lenin. And uh, every night um, after the office would close, uh, the Panthers would sit down and, and they would study these books. We'd go to political orientation. We would read uh, certain paragraphs and then, um, uh, Fred Hampton and uh, Rush would explain to us, the new membership, basically what it meant and what was happening, and they drew parallels to what was going on in the past revolutions in the various countries, uh, like, for instance, China or Russia, and it was drawing parallels to what was going on in the current political scene within the United States. So they were drawing associations between the revolutions in, uh, in, in the communist countries, as I understood it, as to what was happening in the United States. And, um, and so I understood them to be a little bit more sophisticated than a gang. Um, I expected that it would be weapons and we would be out there uh, doing turf battles with uh, the local gang members, but they, they weren't about that at all. They were uh, into the political scene, uh, the, the war in Vietnam, um, uh, Richard Nixon, and uh, specifically Free and Huey. Yeah, that was a thing. You would, I assume, report this information back to Mitchell. Did he have a, a response? Did he react to this? Well, initially, 
um, Agent Mitchell um, requested very little information from me. It was a one-way street for probably about six months. I think um, he was, in every meeting that I had with him, he listened more than he asked questions. He would, the typical meeting would be, okay, what's it, what are they doing today? And then I would just tell him what was going on around the office in general conversation. He said, okay, and uh, what are you doing? And then I'd tell him what I was doing, and then he'd make mental notes. Sometimes he took uh, shorthand notes, and, uh, and then we'd depart. He said, okay, just keep me informed. And so we had a very loose relationship at that point because the Panthers weren't too active militarily, okay? They were politically organizing at that point. Uh, they were recruiting. At that point, um, the Panthers were trying to, um, well, they, they had speaking engagements at the, at the different colleges and so forth. So we were, we were in an organizing process. And uh, there was very little criminal activity, as I could determine what's going on, very little to report to the FBI, in my mind, you know, because I felt like since the FBI was a, 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 an investigative body investigating federal crimes, that um, crimes were what they were looking at. And so. Tell me a little bit about how you felt about working for the FBI. What motivated you and um, what you thought you were, what ends you thought you were serving? Well, in my community, the policemen were, I mean, it was the quickest way to gain respect. I mean, I think uh, I grew up wanting to be a policeman, admiring and respecting policemen, although I always thought it was outside of my reach. Um, I, my neighborhood was not unlike most people that grow up in Chicago, most young people. We were very mischievous and did a lot of uh, juvenile-type, uh, petty criminal-type things. But um, stealing a car and all of a sudden having the FBI, having a case with the FBI that thought of having really going to jail uh, got my attention. And uh, so when he asked me to join the Black Panther Party, and he used terms, he never used the word informant, he always said, you're working for me, and I associated him as the FBI. So all of a sudden, I was working for the FBI, which in my mind at that point, I associated with being an FBI agent. So I felt good about it. I felt like I was working undercover for the FBI, doing something good for the finest police organization in America. And so I was pretty proud. Mitchell, the relationship between I and Mitchell concentrated on the local activities. Uh, we talked very, very little about what was going on nationally early on in the game. Later on, when um, Bobby Seale and the guys would come to town, uh, it took on a national scope. Uh, but uh, right then and there, we were concentrated um, on the local chapter. And later on, I understood that his thinking in that regard. He wanted me to build up some credibility within the Black Panther Party 
So he gave me a lot of room, a lot of leash at that point. Uh, he let me become a Panther before I became an FBI informant. I mean, I didn't go right in rifling draws. He, he directed me into the Panthers, and then when I got there, he backed off and he let them work on me a while. And slowly it worked. I became a Black Panther in a way. I forgot uh, the, 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 the scope of me being there. In fact, I didn't really know why I was there. I just knew I was to report. But I really didn't have anything to report um, early on in the game, so I concentrated mainly on Panther duties. I lived uh, the life of a Panther. Tell I me about that. How, how did you, how, how did you what was the work that you did, and how did you rise up to the, the ranks of the party? Well, mainly um, from, from day one, we had very little personnel, a lot of spots to fill. There were a lot of activity, a lot of things to do. And so naming positions at that point and filling those positions were really the leadership's responsibility at that point. And because of my knowledge of electronics and uh, you know, I was just a handyman basically around the office, and we had this office building that uh, they feel, felt like wasn't too secure. I started working right away to secure the building, and in that regard, I fell right into the security position. And it got more sophisticated as donations start, started uh, to flow. As the um, membership increased as a result of speaking engagements on the school campuses and so forth, uh, my responsibilities uh, doubled, and so uh, I was given a staff of security people, and then um, I just advanced from that point on. What um, what were the major developments during that that year of the Panther Party as you saw it? Um, was it the programs? Uh, was it the alliances that the party was building? What were what was the Panther agenda as you? To free Huey, uh, basically, was the agenda of the Black Panther Party all along. Let it be no mistake, uh, Huey P. Newton was locked down. The Black Panther Party was Huey P. Newton, and Huey P. Newton was the Black Panther Party. And uh, no matter how powerful or strong our membership got in the, in the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party, uh, no matter how many speaking engagements Hampton had, or how many donations we had, or how many papers, um, there was always a national office uh, out there to remind us that we were subservient to the national office, that we were just a chapter and we weren't the Illinois Black Panther Party. We was the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party. And their goals at that point was to free their leader, who was locked down in Alameda County Jail, uh, facing the death penalty for killing a, a police officer. Um, the party recognized that uh, at that point that they needed liaisons, they needed uh, alliances with various groups in order to survive, basically in the climate in Chicago. So they embraced the various political issues um, that was uh, of the day. Um, they got involved in all types of causes, mainly to fortify their position and to free their leader, Huey P. Newton. And he was effectively running the Black Panther Party from inside of the jails. Most of uh, our political direction um, was mandated, uh, came out through his lawyers, and was passed on nationally through the chapters. Um, it was Huey Speaks. Stop. Yes. Stop him down.
you tell me about how things changed as the uh, as, as Well, I'd say from uh, February 1969, the um, activities uh, within the party was high speed. Um, we were in our bloom. Uh, we had about 500 members. We were selling probably about 25,000 newspapers in the city of Chicago every week, or the Panther newspaper, that is. Um, we had um, various um, members of uh, our party, of the Black Panther Party, going to the colleges all over the state, speaking engagements. Donations were coming in to the tune of about $1,500, $2,000 a day. But at the same time, the Chicago police had stepped up their activities also. A lot of our a lot of the members were being arrested on petty charges. So the money we were bringing in on the one hand and donations, money that came through the mail anonymously, blank checks and money orders, was going right out in bail money. So um, it, was, it was intense. And uh, in that regard, the Black Panther Party was everywhere and doing everything. We had 500 members and everybody was aggressive. And uh, it was hard for me to report on all of the activities that were occurring. I could only concentrate on what uh, my little group was doing. I was, uh, as security captain, I was in what was called the defense cadre. It was technically under Bobby Rush's command because he was the deputy minister of defense. And then during that year, we considered uh, we were in a state of war. Our leader was locked down. The police was attacking officers all over the country. Uh, they was trying to break us financially through bail. And so um, the Minister of Defense takes over in a situation like that. Uh, uh, Fred Hampton was in charge mainly with speaking engagements, uh, public relations, uh, um, reaching the people, recruiting, um, and things of that nature. He was the chief spokesman. Um, he was the one that the cameras saw all the time. But Bobby Rush and our group was the operations. We were activities at that point. It was our job to defend the offices uh, against the police, uh, uh, to get members out of jail, to discipline the members, uh, to kind of, you know, maintain the police control of the organization, to deal with informants and so forth. Now, as the party was growing, though, what was, what was Mitchell starting to ask you about, or, or how was your relationship with Mitchell changing? You, you well, Mitchell um, was part of a squad, in my opinion, of about five or ten agents, and each one of them had their little, they had, had their little activities within the Black Panther Party. Mitchell's questions were defined mainly to my area. We ne he never asked me how many newspapers uh, that, that someone else was selling or how's, how, who got the catalogs for the Breakfast of the Children program or who's going to open up the medical center. He wasn't concerned with that. He was concerned with my activities in the Panthers, which at that point was exclusively security issues. Um, we were buying weapons at that point. Um, we weren't, uh, we didn't have any type of working relationship with the largest street gang at that time, which was the Blackstone Rangers. They had about 2,000 members and were well armed. And um, at some point, a meeting was um, arranged. Uh, we met with Jeff Fort uh, of the Blackstone Rangers. And at that meeting, we were in a Catholic church. I remember that night uh, we were setting up, and Jeff Fort told Fred Hampton there, there is not going to be any Black Panthers in the city of Chicago. You guys either join the Blackstone Rangers or get out of the city. And um, Hampton came away from that meeting uh, feeling like we were going to eventually have to do battle with these guys. There was no compromise. They didn't, they couldn't associate, they, the Blackstone Rangers, couldn't associate our purpose politically with uh, 
their gang turf thing. So uh, we were going to have to deal with them. So the word went out to me to basically start um, buying weapons. We also knew that uh, the state's attorney had declared war on us, and pretty soon uh, we were going to face a, a raid at one of our offices. And the mentality at that time was that we know it's coming. Um, our job is to set an example for the people. We, we, we must be ready. And so we started fortifying the offices and buying guns and um, training uh, uh, our soldiers, the security people. I want to talk now about the events. Oh, all right. Let's just stop that. Stop now? Yes. You want to know? Right now, you're focused on just why I went to the first the first, the first, first, first connection. Okay. Yeah, he stole the car. And he, uh, he called you back and told you. Okay. He could get you off the hook if. Okay. Well, he didn't say that, but really the. Okay. Well, am I ready now? Yeah. Well, simply, I stole a car and took it across the state line. The FBI had a case on me. They could either prosecute me and put me in jail or decline to prosecute because. Uh, I assisted them in one of their investigations. I think I understood that. So the day he called and asked me to join the Black Panther Party, I understood what my role was to be. And that's what I did. Is that good enough? Mitchell, okay. Okay, it's simple. I stole a car and went across the state line. It violated federal law. Um, Mitchell, agent from the FBI, had a case on me. He had a choice of either prosecuting me and sending me to jail or declining to prosecute uh, as a result of uh, me aiding him in another case. And I decided to take the uh, latter. When he asked me to join the Black Panther Party, uh, I did so, and I understood what my role was to be. We didn't quite catch it, I think, but I mean, That's a role. we can do it again. Well, we do it again. Well, a typical meeting between um, my FBI contact, Mitchell, um, would be uh, downtown Chicago at 11, 12 noon, at, down in the basement of, uh, at some bar, some dark bar. And I would meet him at the bar. He'd already get, he'd be there when I got in there. And um, he'd have a drink, and I'd have a drink. And we'd sit there and and talk for 15 or 20 minutes, and it was very casual. I mean, it was like I'd come in, and he said, oh, what you up to? And, I, and then I'd say, well, I'm going down to Champagne and speaking engagement with Fred, and I'm taking such and such with me, and, and we're carrying guns, and we're driving this car, and let's, I just rattle it off. 10 or 15 minutes, I'd tell him everything I knew. And he, did, he, he didn't have to say very much, because when I joined the Black Panther Party, most of the information that I was giving him at that time was new information to him. So as I grew inside of the party and, beginning, and began to learn things, he grew also. So he knew the members better than I did. Um, we talk about the, the girlfriends and who was, you know, pregnant and who had a venereal disease, you know, and this was just casual conversation between he and I. He wasn't always writing. What he put in his files, uh, I still don't have the benefit of. But I know uh, after a while, he and I became friends. 
and we talked in casual conversation about what I was doing in the Black Panther Party. Well, the whole nature of that relationship changed right around November, maybe November 13, when two police officers were killed by a Black Panther member named Jake Winters on the south side of Chicago. Um, that night, um, as I understand the, the, the gun battle, uh, Jake Winters straddled one of the officers who were wounded in the shootout and um, performed a coup de grace, a mercy killing. He straddled the officer after the officer was, after the officer was down and, and put a shotgun to his head and put him out of his misery. It, or at least that's the way the newspaper described it. And I think the whole city, I think the Black Panthers took the rap for that one when they really didn't deserve it because um, Jake Winters was out there on his own. He wasn't out there on any official m member uh, uh, mission for the Black Panther Party. He was out there on his own, and uh, he got into a altercation with a guy, and the guy called the police, and the police came, and the shootout broke out, and uh, two police officers were killed, and Jake Winters were killed. Well, the Panthers took the heat because Jake Winters was a Black Panther. And uh, past that point, uh, I noticed uh, maybe a couple of days after this officer was killed, uh, Mich Mitchell had this, uh, this grim, solemn atmosphere about himself. And I could tell he was looking for specific, he wanted specific criminal violations. He wanted something that he could move on. And I think he may have implied or even expressed that at one or two points. He's, he expressed his anger over what had happened, how, I mean, the total disregard for life, and I mean, he, that was the first time I ever saw him express his a personal opinion about uh, what he thought the Black Panthers were doing. Okay, I want to get you focused now. It's November 1969. Can you describe to me the kind of information you were giving Mitchell um, about, about what was going on? Well, he started, um, Mitchell um, became more specific during that time. Um, he wanted to know the locations of weapons caches. He wanted to know if we had explosives. Um, he needed um, he needed to know who was staying at what locations, um, who spent the night where. Um, um, his information didn't change so much as he requested more detail. And uh, I knew why. Uh, um, the, the, the shootout on the South Side had pretty much laid the foundation. Within the party, within the Black Panthers, we knew that the police would react some type of way. We could just feel the stepped-up surveillance. We could feel the pressure uh, all the way around. And we knew something bad was going to happen. And I think we were all prepared for it. Uh, during that time, uh, Fred was conducting quite a few speaking engagements, but even his attitude had changed somewhat uh, within the Black Panther Party. He, he was becoming less, he was becoming more reluctant to, to speaking engagements, to making those outward uh, appearances. Uh, he became more reserved, more protective of himself. Um, he very seldom traveled anywhere by himself, and he began taking five and six bodyguards with him. And um, so I f he felt it also. Also, he felt like he was going to prison. 
uh, he was pretty sure that uh, the robbery conviction uh, was going to take him out of the game. So he started preparing other members to take his role. Um, pretty much. Uh, There's a floor plan of the apartment uh, on Monroe Street. Um, and there are FBI memos that I've seen that don't have your name on it. But the implication has always been that some of the information came from you on reports about weapons being at Monroe Street or not. <coughs> Did you give that information to Mitchell? And if so, <coughs> Well, I routinely uh, supplied whatever floor plans or diagrams I could uh, to the FBI. I, that started in June 1969. I mean, they had a floor plan and keys to the Black Panther headquarters. Um, the specific apartment on Monroe, um, I supplied that floor plan. Um, perhaps not the one you saw, but I do remember uh, meeting with Mitchell at, at one point. And, um, and drawing up a diagram of the apartment. Um, the one I've seen in, in, in court, uh, that was a little bit more fine-tuned than the one that I, uh, uh, you know, drew. Describe to me the meeting where, uh, where you remember giving information to Mitchell. Well, it was, the, the meeting was not unlike uh, the other meetings we'd had. It was always at the same location, was always during the daytime, and um, it was routine. I. Here again, um, in my mind, I knew that a raid was being planned. In my mind, I knew it. Um, I knew also from the type of information that it would be um, probably uh, the, a, a top raid, from, from the, uh, meaning um, the leader, from one of the leader's apartments. Um, I also knew that the uh, most vulnerable spot was um, was Hampton's house because it was the one that had all the weapons in it. It was the one with the uh, with the with the weapons. Um, very few of the other apartments had the kind of weapons he had at that apartment. So uh, when he asked me for the diagram, it didn't surprise me. I knew the raid was going to be planned. I felt like at uh, at that point, that what they wanted to do was catch him with weapons and seal his conviction. Uh, if he'd have been caught with the weapons out on appeal, he would have went straight to jail. And it, I don't, I can't recall it being expressed. I can't recall any specific conversations I've had with Mitchell about the raid. But we had such a unity of mind, so to speak. Uh, our efforts were basically one. Um, I understood what was going on. He didn't have to tell me. Um, he um, described to me going to the funeral of two police officers that got killed, and uh, I knew he was—I knew he was hurt by that, uh, and I knew he was going to do what he could to uh, help the police department uh, do something about it. The night of December—I'm sorry. Can you stop for a second? Yes, stop down. Generally, I was paid paid in cash, and uh, normal amounts would have ranged from three to five hundred dollars, depending on my needs. If I requested a specific amount, I knew that I could get it. But the payments were very infrequent. I mean, um, Mitchell determined, Agent Mitchell determined uh, early on in the game that uh, spending money was the quickest way to blow your cover. Also, I was living in the Panther environment. I was living in a Panther 
house, which they call the crib. I was eating with them and sleeping with them, and I was with them 24 hours a day, so I had very little need for money. So I was always um, assured that uh, my money was being held in trust and that I could draw from it, draw down on it anytime I got ready or anytime I had a legitimate need that wouldn't compromise my security. I suppose at any point if I needed $1,000 or $2,000 from the FBI, I couldn't have gotten it. Depending on my travel schedule, and later on uh, within the Black Panther Party, I was traveling around a lot uh, as a bodyguard to Hampton and so forth, and uh, every way he went, I went. So the meetings became infrequent as uh, the activities picked up, um, normally once a week. Uh, in the fall of uh, 1969, it had gotten down to about once a week. And uh, past that point, it was just telephonic contact. Yes. 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 Walk me through the events of the evening of December the 3rd, what you did, where you were. December 3rd. It was cold that day. Uh, it was really a slow day. Uh, we were at the office. Uh, Hampton was there. Rush was there. The general staff was there. It wasn't too much activity going on streetwise because the weather was so cold. Um, it's a melancholy kind of day. It just came and went. Got down to the evening. Uh, uh, we all decided to walk the block from uh, the office to Hampton's house and eat dinner. Um, the women were cooking dinner, a big dinner. Big. I think we had chili and big pot of spaghetti. And uh, most of us that had labored at the office were looking forward to just going over there and uh, eating dinner and reading and just being together. It was uh, just a slow day. It was the last day we, it would be, you know, it was the last type of day where we think that anything was going to happen. It was just too quiet. Nothing was happening. Totally off guard. There are conflicting autopsy reports that Fred Hampton may or may not have been drugged. Um, there are stories about whether or not you brought Fred Hampton Fred Hampton drugged. I've never known Fred. Uh, I knew him for about oh, 16 months. I've been with him in a lot of different situations. Uh, we've uh, been in hotels together. Uh, we've been out, he and I alone, in the car. I've never known Fred to, uh, to take drugs. And um, to take it a step further, Fred would not tolerate anyone even smoking marijuana around him. And uh, I don't think any of us uh, in the hierarchy of the of the Black Panther Party uh, would dare get drunk or drink. So alcohols and drugs were a no-no. As far as uh, the rumors that uh, he was drugged uh, that night, uh, unless he was on some type of medication, I think it was just rhetoric. I think it was fabricated. As far as the insinuation that uh, myself or someone else in the house would have drugged Frank, uh, Fred Amp, Fred Hampton, uh, I don't buy it. Uh, it was just no way. Fred was the type of person that uh, you didn't have to drug anyway. Fred was always tired. 
he could get in a car and we couldn't ride two blocks without him dozing off. I mean, he, he just, uh, he was a high energy person that ran on very little fuel and wherever he sat down, he was well rested. Um, I've never, uh, I've never believed that. I mean. In the days prior to December 3rd, had you given Mitchell specific information about weapons that were at the Wall Street Park? Well, I can recall, uh, uh, we had a couple of conversations, but uh, where I told him basically what was uh, in various apartments, and, and uh, yeah, the apartment on uh, Monroe was not unlike uh, the office and so forth. He had a, a running knowledge pretty much of where the weapons were, what weapons were there, and so forth. I can re recall uh, probably around the second or third verifying that certain weapons were still as previous, where previously reported, yeah, I, I can recall having a conversation or two about weapons. How did you learn about the police raid on the Monroe Street apartment? <clears throat> well, the following day, uh, I went directly to the office, and uh, the office was empty, unusually empty. It was one girl sitting behind the desk, and she was on the phone, and there was just no people there. And I walked in, I guess it was about, oh, 10 o'clock in the morning, and I walked in, and um, I was waiting on her to get off the phone to ask, you know, what was up. And I saw a Sun-Times, copy of Sun-Times laying there and had his picture on there and had uh, Panther Leader Slain on it. And uh, boy, I felt bad. I felt just, oh, I mean, and I remember uh, walking out of the office and uh, and looking through a little clearing over on the, ne the next block, which was right in front of uh, the Monroe Street address, and seeing a lot of <clears throat> police cars over there. And um, at that time, Bobby Rush came to the office. Uh, he had just come from over there, or maybe the coroner's office. In any case, we walked back over there, and uh, we both were speechless. We just walked through the house and and saw where what had taken place and where he died, and it was it was shocking. Um, that was what, well, you know that was. Um, I think I think it was that morning that I began to feel that I felt really. I mean, everything that I had done flashed before me. I began to I began to put put it all together, pretty much, and. Um, I couldn't believe it. I mean, it was just shocking, and uh, uh, that uh, that he had died. What did you begin to put together? The information, the the the, the, um, the information leading up to the raid, the 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 attitudes, and the, the whole thing. I mean, you just felt it in the wind. You knew something bad was going to going to happen. I felt like it would be a raid. I knew it would be a raid. I mean, two police officers had got killed. I knew it would be a raid, but I didn't feel like uh, anyone would get killed, especially not Fred, you know. So, uh, yeah, I was shocked. I felt a little... Did you done? I didn't feel like I had done anything. I didn't walk in there with guns. I didn't shoot him. FBI didn't do it. I felt uh, somewhat like I was betrayed. I felt like if anyone should have known it was going to be a raid that morning. I should have known. 
also. I felt like I could have been caught in that raid. I was there that night, and I felt like uh, if I had laid down, I probably would have been a victim. So I felt betrayed. I felt like I felt like I was expendable. I felt like um, like perhaps uh, I was on the wrong side. Yeah, yeah, I had my misgivings. I'm not gonna. I no. I, I'm not gonna sit here now and take the responsibility for the raid. You know, uh, I'm not gonna do that. I didn't pull the trigger. I didn't issue the warrant. I didn't put the guns in the apartment. So I'm not gonna take the responsibility for that. But I do feel like uh, I was betrayed. I felt like I should have known the raid was coming down. I felt like it was probably. Um, Excessive. Yeah, I felt like it was a surgical strike, you know. And I was real angry for quite a few days, quite a few days. I refused to uh, have any contact with Roy Mitchell at that point. But I think he pretty much understood, too. Um, we got together and had a few drinks, and... Uh, He didn't take any responsibility for it either. He said basically uh, he didn't know it was going to occur, which at that point was hard for me to believe. I just began to understand basically how serious and deadly the game we had all been playing for 16 months. The reality of what we were doing just came to bear on us that morning. I think. I think the membership was, was automatically decreased by 300 members that, that never showed up again when that happened. I think that uh, all, of the, uh, all of our enemies, all of the Black Panther Party's enemies came out of the woodwork to capitalize on the situation. Bobby Rush. Uh, was angry for quite a few days about all of the national leaders that showed up to lend support to the Black Panthers who wouldn't sit down and have a conference with them early in the game. All of those people that showed up at Freddie Hampton's funeral and looked over his coffin um, didn't give him 10 minutes of their time when he was alive. Yes, stop now. My recruitment by the FBI was very efficient. Very simple, really. Um, I'd stolen a car and uh, went joyriding over the state limit. And um, they had a potential case against me, and I was looking for an opportunity to uh, work it off. And um, a couple of months later, that opportunity came when uh, uh, FBI agent Roy Mitchell asked me to uh, go down to the local office of the Black Panther Party and try to uh, gain membership. I. Um, did so and became a member of the Black Panther Party. Were you aware specifically through Mitchell of a program called COINTELPRO, the counterintelligence program? At the time, no. I had no idea of any national uh, program out to get the Panthers. I had uh, no idea. In retrospect, uh, I can determine, I have determined from the type of information that I probably contributed greatly to it. Um, you, you told the story before, and I'd just like to have you repeat it about Mitchell um, telling you that he had other agents 
give him information and how you will. And I mean, you know, you, you know how you're being checked out. Well, I think early on in the game, uh, uh, he let me know that the information, most of the information that um, I was supplying him was information he had already, or uh, had been developed by his squad already. He kind of indicated that uh, the information I was supplying was being cross-referenced uh, with other informants. So I always felt like um, it was best to tell the truth in talking to him because he had his own methods. Uh, it's very little information that I gave him that he seemed surprised of, okay? I just assume the FBI is not the FBI for nothing, you know? Once again, I want to ask you about your feelings when you learned about the raid, Fred Hampton's death, or walking to the apartment with Bobby Rush. Uh... I can't do it again. I, I just can't. Uh, it just, it won't, it won't jail. Well, it, it didn't really hit me then. It, it hit me after I walked into that house. Um, it was cold, and it, it was blood everywhere, and it was holes in the wall. And, and then I was, you know, I just began to realize that the information that I supplied leading up to that moment had facilitated that raid. I knew that indirectly uh, I had contributed and I felt it and I felt bad about it and then I got mad you know I had uh, and then I had to conceal those feelings which made it worse I couldn't I couldn't say anything I just had to continue to play the role and um, I think it was at that point that I lost uh, I lost something I lost something, uh, I mean, everything that I thought we were doing to fight crime had a different message after that. You know, it was a, it was a blow. That's the best I can do with that one. Yes, I did, um, but it came later for me. Uh, the movement came later. The well, you got to understand. I was looking. I was inside of the Black Panther Party, looking out at the movement. Some in my know? Oh. Um. Stop the camera a minute, please. Well, I always understood the movement uh, from Martin Luther King's angle. Uh, in my view, he was the movement. Um, the Panthers, uh, their perspective was as black revolutionaries, black nationalists. They really uh, didn't want this government. They wanted to overthrow this government. They wanted to embarrass this government. They wanted to punch holes in the system. They wanted to investigate and um, illustrated shortcomings. That was their purpose. They, they were a vanguard. At one point, um, the, the party members embraced uh, 
um, the, uh, Huey P. Newton's writings. It was a theory of revolutionary suicide. They felt like their job was to get out there and basically die uh, to set an example. Um, they were sacrificial lambs, okay, uh, for the people. That was the, their their position. It was a, a phase. They were they were not really in the mainstream civil rights movement, in my opinion. I thought Fred Hampton was pretty um, idealistic. He was pretty dedicated to the black struggle. I felt like he gave a lot. He gave his life. And uh, out of the 16 months that I knew him, I don't have anything bad to say about him. I, I'm sorry that uh, he died like he did. Uh, he was, uh, in my opinion, he was murdered by the Chicago Police Department. Uh, and I feel bad about that. I felt like. Uh, he was a person that died for what he believed in. Um, had he lived today, he probably uh, would be a politician, a successful politician. You said that he thought he might die after he got out of prison? No, I, I think he felt after he got out of prison like he was a target unfairly. I think he felt like he was getting, he was going to jail for five years and, and nobody else was. And all he had done was basically gave speaking engagements. So I think he felt used. I think uh, there was always a friction, a little bit of jealousy uh, between the price that the local chapters were paying and the splendor and the notoriety that the national leaders were getting, such as Eldridge Cleaver and, and Huey Newton and those guys, uh, we felt like we were paying, the Panthers felt like they were paying a heavy, heavy price to be uh, Panthers. And I think at one point Fred felt like uh, he was a focal point of a national agency to get him. And they were going to get him one way or the other. And he felt pretty much taken out of the game with five years. I think he was resigned to to go into prison, he was resigned to not being a Panther anymore. I. Let me ask you about the Chicago Police and the FBI. Do you distinguish between the two? I do. I definitely do. I definitely draw a distinction between the uh, FBI and the uh, Chicago Police. I um, have known quite a few FBI agents, and uh, I've worked with them for the last five or six years, and they've never asked me to compromise my morals and my principles. Contrary to public belief, I haven't been instructed to commit crimes or provoke crimes or conduct burglaries or inject drugs in people uh, or to commit murder. I haven't been. Um, if anything, um, my association with the FBI made me a better person. How did they treat you when you, when you were relaxing with Mitchell? Did there ever any other agents there? Not only was I treated, I had been to Mitchell's home. I have held his child in my hands, uh, in my arms when he was one years old. I have been through the offices of the FBI uh, wearing sneakers and, and a dirty T-shirt with Mitchell. I rode around with him in his car during that time, uh, three or four months after I became a Panther. Uh, I've eaten at his table, at his dinner table. Um, we had a very, at one point, uh, he was a role model for me when I needed one.
I mean, we had very few role models back then. We had Malcolm X. Uh, we had Martin Luther King. Uh, we had Muhammad Ali. And I had an FBI agent. Not anymore, no, not a policeman, no. I've never wanted to be a policeman. The FBI, I think, are much more, much more efficient, much more effective organization than a policeman, yeah. Chicago police are one thing. The FBI is another. Yeah, I see a distinction. Was there a loss? <laughs> was there a loss? Yes. I think that uh, the slaying of Fred Hampton was definitely a loss to uh, to black people uh, in general. Uh, he would have made a fine, he was a fine leader then, and he would have made a better leader. He was only maturing then. I mean, he was 22 years old. and. Uh, we tried to develop negative information to discredit him, just like we did uh, everybody else. We, meaning the FBI, I tried to come up with uh, signs of him doing drugs or, or something, and uh, never could. He was clean. He was dedicated. I've had private conversations with him. Uh, we got along pretty well. Uh, for about seven months, I was his personal bodyguard. He wouldn't go anywhere without me. And I know Fred Hampton better than anybody, to tell you the truth. Um, he was dedicated. That's, that's all I can say to it. Some roll out? Do you think of yourself as a hero for what you did? Absolutely not. I'm not a hero. No, I don't think of myself as a hero for what I've done, but at the same time, I don't feel ashamed. It was a uh, it was my role during that time. Uh, there were a lot of different roles, a lot of different uh, positions. Uh, there were actually a lot of blacks uh, fighting in Vietnam that uh, felt like uh, they should have been there and was proud to be there, fight for the country. I felt like uh, there was a war here in the street, and uh, I was recruited early, and I joined sides early, and uh, I didn't straddle the fence. I gave it all, uh, all I could, as long as I could. And then when I felt like I couldn't give anymore, I left. I excused myself. Um, do I feel like I betrayed someone? Absolutely not. I had no allegiance to the Panthers. I didn't even know what they were about when I joined. I joined at the instigation of the FBI, who I had scant knowledge of. So, uh, no, I don't feel like I betrayed anybody. I don't feel like I'm a hero. Am I proud? I'm proud of some of the things that uh, I that we that I done. Um, there were certain things that we done that uh, prevented a lot of violence. Um, there could have been more shootouts between the gang members. Uh, um, every now and then, a suspected informant inside the Black Panther Party would be unearthed or detected and uh, we passed on information to get that informant out of the game. And uh, so <clears throat> we uh, avoided some violence there. I, uh, How do you think members of the black community at that period would have perceived what you were doing? 
uh, well, those members of the Black Panther Party, uh, those members of the community that, that weren't informants, I'm sure that they wouldn't understand, but it was quite a few informants back then. Quite a few. I mean, what am I supposed to do, feel guilty right now about it? I didn't feel guilty then. I was hurt because Fred Hampton died. I was hurt because a lot of other people died uh, in the Panthers. There were a lot of Panthers that died in Chicago, got killed needlessly and senselessly. Um, at this point, I question the whole purpose of the Black Panther Party. It got a lot of people hurt. And they did very little else. I mean, if you associate the Black Panther Party with the Civil Rights Movement, that's that's a mistake. In my in my thinking, uh, they were necessary. It was a shock treatment for white America to see black men running around with guns, just like black men and saw white men running around with guns. Yeah, that was a shock treatment. It was good in that extent, but it got a lot of black people hurt. Regret the personal cost? Was it personal cost during that period in terms of relationships with women or friends? No, because um, the party was, the Black Panthers were communistic, and basically everything we had was within the party. Uh, when I joined the Black Panther Party, I developed friendships. I developed new friends within the party. I was closely aligned with what they were doing. It was only certain individuals that were of any um, interest to the FBI. Um, the FBI never asked me about the Breakfast for Children program. They never asked me about the free medical program. They never said anything other than ridicule the Black Panther newspaper. Um, they never questioned their right to have firearms. They were only interested <clears throat> in Panthers that uh, were doing other things. Um, Panthers aligned to SDS and the Weathermen back then. Panthers that were s smuggling guns into the city. Uh, uh, every now and then I'd pick up a locker full of Composition C4. And the FBI was interested in tracking the, that 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 type of weapon, you know, to find out where it was destined to. You know, they were only interested in basically the communications we had with other militant uh, divisions, planner groups outside of the outside of the city. They never asked me about uh, f f free clothes for children and stuff like that. No. Did you ever develop any hard evidence that Panthers were involved in the coalition with SDS? Well, the Panthers had a public coalition with SDS, but the under, under <coughs> the the weather underground was a different uh, ball game. But then I knew Bernadine Dorn and those people before they uh, became weathermen when they were just SDSers, and um, I knew the relationships we had then, and the relationships were pretty tight. There was always uh, no, there was no hard. Proof, but who needed proof? I didn't need it. FBI didn't need it. What would you tell your son about what you did? I think I'll let your documentary uh, put a cap on that story. I don't know. I don't know what I'd tell him other than uh, I was part of the struggle.
That's the bottom line. I wasn't one of those armchair revolutionaries, one of those people that uh, want to sit back now and judge the actions or inactions of people when they sit back on the sideline and did nothing. At least I had a point of view. I was dedicated, and then I had the courage to get out there and put it on the line, and I did. Um, I think I'll let, it, let history speak for me. Up and down. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. We wasn't worried about the Chicago police raiding us. Like I said, uh, we had guns. They knew we had guns. We'd had guns ever since we were there in the office. And nobody expected Chicago police just to blatantly come up in there. And sure, if we were to shoot out the window or something, or somebody uh, run up in there and they're in hot pursuit, yeah. But uh, we didn't expect the police department to come at 4 o'clock in the morning and raid the apartment. I mean, they knew guns were there. Hampton was out on appeal. And I think they were suspecting that he would probably try to flee the state or something. So they had cars on him constantly. I mean, he was tailed constantly. But uh, like I said, it was a game. It was a game we were playing. Uh, the leather jackets, the beret, the, the military uh, format, the, the guns, it was all to impress the people, really. Um, we never intended to take on the police department to overthrow the government. The Black Panthers wasn't all about that. Um, it was rhetoric. It was. Uh, like I said, it was shock treatment for white America. Well, I knew that it was kind of serious. Um, well, if the game turned into reality when I saw him, when I saw Fred Hampton's body. Yeah, um, when I walked through that house um, and saw those bullet holes and that blood laying on his mattress. Yeah, it, was, it, it hit home then. I knew we were. We were in the real world, and that there were people out there that was uh, going to kill us. That was the bottom line. It was real. But before that time, it was, you know, we used to walk around packed. I mean, I, I carried two guns every day for seven, eight months. We used to walk in the University of Illinois Circle campus, man, on a speaking engagement at 2 o'clock. In the summer of 1978, I interviewed a man who worked as an informer for the FBI during the 1960s. His name is Dothard Perry, 
also known as Ed Riggs, also known as Bill Perry, also known as Othello. How were you paid? The pay was always in cash. Cash, and you would sign a card. It would go like this. A rendezvous or a drop-off point would be picked out either by yourself or the agent. You would meet the agent there. Uh, usually it would be in a vehicle. You get in the vehicle, he would hand you the money. He would tell you first to count the money. He would tell you the amount while you counted it. If the amount was there, he would then bring out a card. On that card would be for the week of such and such. In other words, the week was dated. So-and-so has been paid the amount of. Then you would sign the card, and then the agent would sign the card. The reason for this is that if uh, all of a sudden the IRS became very interested about where you were getting all this extra money from, you could always tell them to go back to the Bureau, and the Bureau would have your cards on file. I see. Uh, were there such things as bonuses? Oh, yes. What were they paid for? Bonuses were paid for, um, suppose, while you were meeting with, um, or you were at a meeting with Bobby Seals, uh, Chulai of the Red Army happened to come to the meeting, too, which is something which would be a new development. That's, that's bonus time. In other words, a hot piece of information. Hot piece, very hot piece. Did you ever suffer pangs of conscience? Quite a few times. Quite a few times. I still suffer pangs of conscience. Uh, I suffer from the fact that a lot of people trusted me, and I misused that trust. I suffer from the fact that uh, a lot of information that I gave out was the undoing of certain groups or certain people. Uh, I suffer from the fact that uh, I'm on the run constantly. Uh, I have no real life to speak of. Uh, you have no family life, really? You have a wife? Uh, no, I don't have a wife. I do have a child. Uh, I can't see her uh, that often. I have to stay away from them because once I come around, uh, the Bureau shows up and harassment starts. Uh, I have very few close personal friends, no one to really confide in. Uh, it's, uh, it's like being uh, on the outside of a glass jar and everything is happening inside the jar, but you're on the outside. You can see it happening, but you can't participate. Why have you decided to talk to me? Uh, for the simple reason, I think this information should be, should, should be getting out, should be gotten, should be put out to the public. I think not only black people, but everyone should become aware of what your so-called law enforcement agencies do to so-called enforce the law. Uh, because between you, myself, and the audience, uh, I've seen more felons in law enforcement than I have in prison. Many would say, well, look, you yourself just got through saying 
that the BLA was involved in criminal activity. What's wrong with wanting to put them in prison? How would you answer them? I would answer them in this way. Um, first off, we have to understand why they did what they did. But I'm not even going to go off into that psychological hoo-ha. What I'm going to say is when you become just as bad as the people that you go after, then uh, <laughs> there's nothing gained and a whole lot lost. You also were active in the infiltration of uh, many cultural groups. Before we go into that step by step, how much research and study did the FBI engage in of black culture in the late 60s? A great amount. Give me an idea. Uh, from the thing is, I, I, I can, uh, they have a file on every type of magazine uh, the blacks read, they have a file on, on, on the music. Music? Uh, music, dance, theater, uh, actors, the comedians, you name it, man. And they would actually study these oh, different... Yes. Oh, yes, definitely. What would they do with music? Uh, to understand the people, you have to understand the culture. To infiltrate, you have to understand. You had a lot of so-called white liberals that were infiltrating the so-called uh, black groups using the uh, information that they had gathered from the studies of blacks. Um, you mean just to understand the behavior pattern of our people? Oh, yeah. I can, uh, you know, Will Heaton could name out some jams of Miles Davis that I hadn't even heard of. He could name off some, some books that I hadn't even read pertaining to black culture. Do you ever see agents actually studying oh, the yes. music of... Yes, yes. Yes, I, 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 I've seen them going over uh, even video portion of cultural events. Uh, the understanding, like when... Okay, you have an organization like uh, uh, Leroy Jones Black House. You remember that. Okay, Leroy Jones's place, which was done on the uh, thing of tribalism. I, I, that's where I first heard the word kintu, mantu, hantu, hentu, these, these words uh, of the African continuum. Uh, you know, I, I learned that from an agent. He ran it down to me. They make in-depth in studies of the personalities of the people they're dealing with, too, uh, uh, culturally. It always helps. When you, when, uh, it's the thing of you can take their culture and use it against them. How large would you say an extensive a collection on our culture would you say the FBI has? Would you rate it as large as a particular library, like the Schomburg Library in Harlem? Or... I would rate it better. I would rate it better, and the, the fact is that they go into details, details that we probably would overlook. Uh, Will Heaton used to meet me in, in different places, you Who? know. Will Heaton, that was one of my super, uh, supervising agents. Uh, there is a certain bar in the Los Angeles area where people into black cultural things met, and Will Heaton used to meet me there. And he would go into very long and tiring conversations 
with some very articulate brothers about culture, African culture, and Afro-American culture. Tell me about some of the uh, cultural organizations that you infiltrated and what you did. PASLA, Mafunde, uh, Watts Writers Workshop, which they had The me Watts at. Writers Workshop? Yes. Uh, Watts Writers Workshop, which was one of the oldest established black uh, writers workshop. That Turn place was burned down. Yeah. Uh, the bureau had it burnt down. How do you know that? I, uh, I know because I participated. I did the arson. You burned down the Watts Writers Workshop? Yes. Why did they want it to go? Uh, at the time, funding had been cut to the workshop had been cut out but it looked like there was a possibility of a grant being given back to the workshop and if there was no theater there would be no grant how did you do it uh two cans of kerosene uh, a purex bottle gasoline and a um, flare highway flare why didn't you use more sophisticated stuff oh no no, 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 you, 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 you're never overly sophisticated. It's too obvious. Uh, this way you make it look like, uh, you know, maybe somebody in the neighborhood that got kicked out of theater at one time, got mad and came and burned the damn theater up, that kind of thing. But you were involved in this theater? I mean, didn't did get to you at all what you were? Hey, man, that got to me a great deal. I love that theater. I built the stage. You built the stage. Oh, yeah. Uh, when I got to the workshop, uh, the stage that had been, the original stage that had been built needed an extension on it. The original part of the stage was in terrible condition. They had no lighting system. I put the lighting system in myself. I put the stage in myself. And that was a stage, man. And that, that was a theater. It's a nice theater. Who was the director of that workshop? Harry Dolan. Harry Dolan. Some very, very uh, well-known artists supported that workshop, gave some money very, to it. Some very well-known artists came out of the Watts Writers Workshop. You know, uh, Glenn uh, Tubman, uh, uh, Koto, uh Sidney Poirier used to come down there and give a class. Sammy Davis Jr. used to come down there all the time. Uh, Quincy Jones used to come there and give music classes. We had our own eight-track studio set up for uh, um, sound. We had our own sound room there. Was part of your other activities and responsibilities to uh, study the profiles of celebrities who were supportive of uh, organizations? Definitely, and especially, like I said, psychological backgrounds, weaknesses and strengths. Did he have a weakness for blondes? Did he have a weakness for money? Did he snort cocaine? Uh, did he smoke marijuana? Uh, uh, they even get into, oh, and that's one thing the Bureau loves is their sexual background. Uh, they have files and files on different blacks, not only celebrities, but a lot of others uh, sexual activity what would they do with this information oh that's used as a weakness so they would feed these to these weaknesses yes 
Did you see that happen? Oh, yes. Uh, uh, Doc Holliday, uh, who uh, is the, one of the leaders of the BGF Black Gorilla Family, which is a prison gang in the uh, California state prison system. Upon his release from prison, uh, a certain sister uh, made herself known to him at a nightclub, whereupon uh, he moved in with her, and she picked up names, telephone numbers, information, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, that lasted for a good three and a half months. Was this an unusual thing, or did this oh, no. happen often? No, that, that happens all the time. Did you yourself get involved in doing that? Yes. Give me an example. Uh, there was a gentleman that was on trial in Los Angeles that belonged to the BLA that had been busted in a southern state for a bank robbery but was brought with two other people to Los Angeles to stand trial for the machine gunning of a police officer in Los Angeles. I was supposed to warm my way into the infections of his sister and uh, whatever it took to get the information that I needed as far as what kind of defense they planned to use as, as to turn this information over to the federal prosecution. Did you do it? Uh, I got the information and thank God I didn't have to go through with uh, um, the actual thing of sexual activity. What do you mean, thank God? Uh, the sister was rather unappealing. How did you justify to the organizations in which you had infiltrated yourself that you were living on an $800 a week stipend or on an $800 a week standard of living when most of them were living hand to mouth? Well, hey, brother, you know, uh, I'm hustling, you know. I mean, hey, man, <laughs> you know, sell a little of this on the side, a little of that on the side. You know, I get over, you know, that kind of thing. In other words, ain't nobody's business but mine where I get the money. So, uh, you know, everybody took it for granted that I was possibly doing a little dealing on the side. That kind of thing. Hmm. Then also, uh, uh, everybody liked me for the simple reason that I would do things that I didn't have to do. I would go out of my way. You know, like Mafundi would have a pageant and they needed someone to do the sound setup for him. And I'd say, of course, I'll do it for you. You know, that kind of thing. Uh, I was very well liked at one time in the community. Would you say to American citizens that this situation of surveillance and infiltration continues to this day? Oh, yes. On the dimension that you experienced? Probably much larger by now. Larger? Oh, yeah. Uh, let, me, let, me, let me put it to you like this. Each year, everything gradually escalated up more and more. So I figured uh, when I left, it, it didn't stop escalating. As they say, one monkey does not stop anybody's show. You mentioned Sammy Davis Jr., who at one time, uh, it was reported, gave money uh, to the Black Panther Party, I believe. Uh, were you ever assigned to look into that? Yes, I was, uh, I was told to uh, try to get as close to Mr. Davis or to anyone in his office as I could. I used to go up and have real chit-chat, chummy-chummy conversation with his personal secretary, Ann, at the 9000 building on Sunset. 
And I used to bring a Porter Pack video camera, and I used to go around and I would videotape the whole office. You mean celebrities would be coming into his office and you'd film them freely? Oh, yeah. Didn't they question that? I'm from the Ross Writers Workshop. Yeah, right on, brother, you know, that kind of thing. No questions asked. Same thing with the NAACP Image Awards, you know. Uh, they were very interested in people like Sammy Davis Jr. Uh, um, there was a uh, another black uh, in Los Angeles that they were very interested in because, uh, not Los Angeles, but in Sacramento, Nathaniel Colley, who's attorney for the NAACP. And I know Nat. And uh, they wanted information on him just for the simple reason that he's an attorney for the NAACP which makes no sense to me, but may, must make a lot of sense to them because they use the information. You've been called upon to testify in Washington. Before who? Uh, before the Senate committee. I was called first to testify before the church committee. Uh, and I did go to Washington, D.C. I did testify to those people. And I want to say right now that uh, the committee was full of smack. They got loads and loads of information and didn't even use it, didn't release it. Um, they, I had tapes that I offered to them in evidence against the Federal Bureau of Investigation with conversations of me and my supervising officer uh, where he's telling me to obtain certain articles for him by stealing. Don't get fingerprints on it. We can really use that. Uh, did you take the weapons over to such and such? Uh, the Church's Committee told me that um, they couldn't use the tapes because uh, the tapes were gotten by illegal means. What would you say about the composition of the committee panel that questioned you? Uh, I can say that's for the birds, too, because the same people that I was talking about were the same people on the, on, on, on the panel with the Church's Committee. What do you mean? When I came in the room to be interviewed by the so-called people from the Church's Committee, uh, the representatives from the Federal Bureau of Investigations were also in the room. FBI agents were a member of the Church Committee panel? Uh, they were there with the investigators for the Church's Committee asking questions just like the Church's Committee. And see, this is another thing that I, I find fault with, and this is another reason why I am not going to Washington, D.C., is that, again, I have been asked to come again for the second time. I'm not going again for the simple reason that when I went up there, I went up there with the idea that there were agencies investigating the Federal Bureau of Investigation, not the Federal Bureau of Investigation investigating itself. You're on the lam almost. Um, do you have a sense that you're going to be arrested and go to prison? Oh, yeah, eventually. Eventually, when things come to a head, it has to. It has to be that way. No other way around it. What would you say to citizens who sit and listen to what you've said and have a sense of frustration and helplessness? There are some agents, the old line agents, that disagree with the tactics that were used during the so-called COINTEL period. But one thing I don't want us to jump off of is that people always talk about, they're talking about COINTEL now so heavily. Uh, 
I'm not talking about COINTEL. I'm talking about a thing called BD, which was better known as Black Desk. The Black Desk was set up for a simple thing of infiltrating black organizations and black groups, whatever. Where was this Black Desk, or were there a number of them? There were a number of Black Desks, but the head Black Desk was in Washington, D.C., controlled by Sullivan. And the... Was he black? No. Mm-hmm. And what was the function of the black desks all over the country? I guess there were dozens. Uh, to, the function of the black desk was to monitor activity, social unrest, revolutionary groups, cultural groups and such in the black community. And feed it into this central yes. desk. And it still exists? As far as I know, yes. We've seen a number of investigations into the assassination of uh, Martin Luther King. We've seen an extended police trial of the assassination of Malcolm X. What you seem to say substantiates what many black people say out on the street, that government agents or agencies knew that these assassinations were brewing and either participated in them or allowed them to take place. It would behoove black people, it would behoove all people, really, to question uh, so-called the cut-and-dry uh, <laughs> one-lone assassin theory. Uh, the Bureau and other intelligence agencies are very good at conspiracies. They are very good at setting people up to be killed. They are very good at making innuendos so the person will be killed. City police don't know about because they have policemen in there. They don't let black people form anything without some policemen in there. And while I was in the black Muslim movement, over the black Muslim movement, many of the police who were sent to infiltrate us, they're black, would tell me, say, look, I'm a cop, but I have to come. They would tell me. I knew the, 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 the Muslim movement was full of police. So don't you think anything is going down that they don't know about? The only thing that goes down is what they want to go down. And what they don't want to go down, they don't let it go down.